1: Boys, we are back for another week of SVS fly fishing podcasting. What is going on, man? Uh I'm sitting here looking at two J's God, he's gonna be the new face of fly fishing.
2: I have one staring me right in the face.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then you have one poker
2: in the ear with your
1: nose. Yeah. With his nose.
2: Woodpecker
3: this thing if it <clears throat> if it takes off like oh man, like it could. Jeez. Everybody's going it's gonna be some like novelty. You'd be like an epidemic. Yeah. <laughs> You're gonna see all these guys with <laughs> <laughs> oh, You have my a God. whole bunch of t
1: shirts around with Jay's beak. <laughs> you have a nose for fly fishing. Oh, it's be, oh <laughs> man. You'd be like fruit loops all over again. <laughs> so if anyone doesn't know what we're talking about, we are gonna put out some t shirts, guys. And they are Ooh. featuring the one and only Jay Thompson They're hol- funny. holding a river tactical fly sticker. God, they're funny as hell, man. We're gonna put some pictures up of uh, of the t shirts tonight on Instagram. And that is a
2: perfectly placed beer can to not advertise anything. Exactly. You it is you'd
1: be the worst th- NASCAR driver. <laughs> 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 if if anyone knows the color scheme, they'd know it's a yingling, but you'd be the worst NASCAR driver. That it is. Bobby Labonte
3: would be upset. <laughs> I don't know where to put my hands.
1: I don't know what to do with my hands. <laughs> 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 oh, that one. Tonight's show. Brought to us by Predator Fly Gear. Check them out at PredatorFlyGear.com.
2: A-Rex Hooks. Anything you need. Fresh or saltwater. water. a
3: Sims Fishing. Find them at SimsFishing.com.
1: Tonight's show. We are recording it live at the Urban Fly Company studios. Check it out at UrbanFlyCompany.com.
3: You can and find Why
2: not fishing? Check out their app the dock.
3: And find Allsdorf Genetic <coughs> Hackle at Urban Fly Company.
2: I just got a uh, couple in, so if you need something. You Mark's got this. a fresh load. They won't last long. <laughs> There's some nice ones. A couple. Of, uh, he had a couple extra dyed ones he had in there. All of, uh, two olive, I think one nice purple one. Didn't Derek get one? He got a couple on the last one. Oh, yes. did he? He a couple got of last orange ones. and this yellow he got, oh, jealous. That was one of the nicest saddles I've seen in a long time. That thing had probably 30 feathers that were 16 inches long and a solid three quarters to it, more wide. Man,
1: but those are solid chickens. That's like a 200,
2: probably 220 count feather saddle. So I mean, you got a lot to work with there. Up the sides of the bird, or up the sides of the flies, if you're building like big bulky stuff. You can make some gnarly looking flies with all kinds of different sizes of feathers in them.
1: Speaking of gnarly looking flies, uh, tonight we have a guest coming on, Johnny King. Man, I can't wait to talk to him about designing some flies for all different species of fish.
2: This will be fun. A little bit of saltwater, a little bit of freshwater.
1: Yeah, he's a he's good. He goes way back. Mm-hmm. And uh, one more thing, I want to do. I want to thank an OG. He is OG. Mm-hmm. I want to thank Jay for coming in. I know it uh, it takes a lot, but you've been working after or er, midnight shifts. And you've made time for us the last two weeks, and we really appreciate it, man.
3: Oh man, it's been a. Uh, it gets. It was hard to get used to at first. By Thursday, I finally found my stride. So tonight will be tough, but we only got like two more days. So yeah, next week I'll be back to drinking beers. It sucks not sitting here and drinking beers with you guys. I know it does. I <laughs> I gotta go in here in a few hours. I'm like, yeah,
2: Chad knew that feeling uh, last month. What
3: you and me? We haven't drank beers together in quite a while. Was, there was a couple in there. But yeah, not too many. Super
1: Bowl Sunday. Yeah, that was, that was the, the one. End. And I ended up I ended the night I had such a hangover by the time we were done recording mm-hmm. that it was uh it was worthless.
3: <laughs> oh yeah, we started early that day.
2: You'd have so, buried that all day today.
1: Oh yeah. Yeah, you went on a float today, didn't you?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How'd that turn out for you? Turned out well.
2: Um we wanna get into that now. We're gonna kinda hit a couple things.
1: Uh do you have anything else? We got fifteen minutes.
2: Not really, because musky stunk yesterday.
1: Yeah, I did musky on Monday, and it kind of stunk as well.
2: Mhm. Yeah, no, it was high water, and just wasn't the best for musky. But
1: Isn't it crazy how two different watersheds uh, behave totally different? I still can't believe how low it was
2: today. I got up, I, mean, I fully expected a good flow. I mean, we, we had, what, three inches of snow, and then, what, 45 degrees and rain after that, and it was just, I don't know, we took on a lot of water. Everything was up
1: and then where to go you know you get up there
2: and there's nothing well like, you be y- kidding me i mean it was low low lowest that i have never floated that low huh. and it made it tough the initial part of it it was like we started off and it's so hard for me to judge it because i mean i haven't done that float in a year now or more mm-hmm. it might have been last january i did that float
1: yeah last time when uh you and me both hooked and fish it, in that right above that uh log jam rollover
3: yeah Yep. Did you go? Did you go to the one spot that was kind of in the middle and take a look at it and try to judge by that, or just
1: the ro- the bridge I told you you should have went to? Well, I drove
2: over and the rocks were covered up on the left. The last time I drove over, the rocks were exposed, hmm. so I was like, okay, well, that's good. And then we moved our way down, and I saw where that bend is, and that logs out of there now, right up against mm-hmm. the road. So that's gone. You can just float right through. That nice, and. I looked at it, and I didn't see that log there, so it's hard for me to kind of judge. Load up the boat, went up, put in. We got in there, and the water was like almost up to the bridge there, or almost up to the touching the wall. So I was like, oh, it must be up decent. We get going down through, and I'm like, eh, something ain't right. But you stop early. You fish a spot up through there. We kind of, we poked a couple fish right off the bat, probably within the first couple hundred yards. And then we moved down a little bit, moved a couple more, hopped out of the boat, fished a little bit. Um, somewhere between there, Matt caught a little holdover stocky. Moved down a little bit further, and then that's where it kind of started hitting. I was like, wait a second. Cause it was like all of a sudden you're real fast and technical because it was like there's rocks up everywhere. And as soon as you go around one, you're back rowing, you're trying to turn the boat real quick, and you're weaving in and out of them. You're almost like solemn, like slalom going through them and just like kind of like, like almost, touch- almost touching one. And as soon as you go past it, hurry up and turn in the boat to get around the next one. like, Something ain't right, and then it just got real shallow and flat. And I was like, looking at the shelf ice on the sides, and you could start to see it defined through there because you're past all the pines and all that then and them high banks. I was like, holy crap. It was a good solid, probably 12, 15 inches down from there. Hmm. Holy smokes. Yeah, and that's where you could really start to tell. We went under that bridge. That bridge was almost flat, the railroad bridge, almost flat. There was a little seam, in the boat barely even picked up any speed through it. That's usually like, dang, you like a standing rapid at the front, and mm-hmm. then at that is like all gnarly through there, just dead flat.
1: Huh? That's weird. No water. I would never have guessed that to be like that today. Me either. I wish I'd have changed it up and had I known
2: better and been there more to see it was that and known it, I would have. And then just switched up and went the opposite.
1: Yeah, done a different yep. different
2: float. Yep. But, I mean, all in all, we moved fish. We hit a couple rollovers. We had one rollover come up quick. It hadn't been there before. I never knew of it. And I looked up, and all of a sudden I was like, get out now. <laughs> <clears throat> it was about a two-foot drop. And I just hurry up and turned the boat sideways real quick to hit it, like on like a three-quarter. So we hit, flopped over, and then stuck the one and kind of like dropped it down on the back, and it dropped off of it. I'm like, all right, well, that
3: worked. Well, there we go. Have you been... And Have then, you been okay. to the one on the lower yet?
2: So no.
1: So I went through no, the he other. Hasn't, he hasn't done that one since it's been there. Huh? Uh oh. Is that an interesting one?
3: It's fun. If it's low, you gotta get out and walk it over and just walk the log and but if it's high, man, last two times it's been high enough for me, I've been just able to just
2: So the first rollover send it, but it's only, only a, this.
3: It's only a boat way,
2: wide. The first rollover, you gotta go the whole way to the right, and I was trying like heck too to get it in the middle. And I kept going, I was like, no, there's just a couple boulders, and I went again, I was like, no, it's just too much. Finally, I just backed out, and I went the whole way over. I beached it. As soon as I went through the riffle, that's how shallow it was right there. It beached up right up against the bank. We had to get out and walk it out around that tree there. I mean, that's stupid low. Then the second rollover, as soon as we dropped over it. Could you see it,
3: fish? Could you no. see them in that one, them two pools? We really
2: didn't. I think one time huh. Chris said, there goes one, but other than that, we didn't see them. Second rollover, as soon as I went over, dropped anchor real quick. Chris hopped out.
3: Was it real clear, too? Or
2: uh, Matt did. Oh, super clear.
3: Mm.
2: Yeah. He hopped out there and uh, hooked up to a real nice brookie. I about 13, 14-inch fish. So. And that was a streamer fish as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were fishing uh, little, like all of Sex Dungeons. And that's what I had on for most of the day, too. The one that I had was uh, actually the one tied by four-strand fish. It was like a yellow. I think they were not, not the circus. Yeah, you know, the circus pants but the uh, dumbbell eyes and the chenille wrap on the head. Marabou. Um, Where you caught your brookie that day? We were all together. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Bad pull. Okay, yeah. that's I a great. I swung it pull. in, made a couple strips, let it swing for a second, it was like, bam, 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 and then, and then gone. There. Yep. Ran back
1: through two, three more times and nothing. And then. Uh, well, you're you're coming out of this float not wanting to punt fish, so you must have had fun. Actually, I, did, I had a really good time. You seem to have way more fun with those guys than you do with us. It's <laughs> yeah, always the case. It's
2: just been, I've been on such a musky bender for so long. It was, you know, like yesterday fishing, and it was it was tough yesterday. I got there, I saw the water, and I was like, there's no way to present a fly properly today. One of the areas I wanted to go to was actually foamed and froze over, and it's just there was so much current. You can't quite fish a full sink because the, the, the structure is still there. But when it goes up like this, it doesn't just go up high; it goes up fast. So it, it raises a little, but it just gets faster and faster. And there's just no way to present a fly that would have worked yesterday. And I beat the crap out. And I got in areas that I had seams that I can slow it down and I can work the fly. And I would just beat them seams there because the other areas I just there's no point of messing with. So I try to get to where I can slow it
1: down and work them. But <coughs> so like. Were you, where you caught the big fish? Were yes. you fishing right in there that, that that spot, that in, spot on both
2: sides? Yes, I mm-hmm. worked out from both sides. I did hit something that I don't know. I hung up on, whether I don't know whether it was what it was, but that opposite bank, I had a big, like fifteen inch game change bucktail changer on. I don't know. It was goofy, but
1: could have been the, a log. Could have been a could fish. Could have been could a log, been but in
2: an area where it was and. With an intermediate line, it's like there's, I'm not even anywhere remotely close to anything over there. Kind of made me wonder. But I've worked that a lot and um, <clears throat> down where the sign is because you can kick quarter upstream and you can let that sink down into that pool and you can kind of work it deep through there. And then when the sun was up real high, I was actually working some of the mud flats trying to see if any fish were moving up close to maybe warm up a little bit. But I didn't see nothing. Something bumped off, but it looked
1: more like a sucker. Or a, it was small. Yeah, 'cause yesterday ended up it ended up warming up the end the sun, of the We had the sun,
2: but the problem was, is that wind kicked up yesterday bad, and it was just oh brutal cold. Yeah. Today was really warm though. It was nice. I mean, we got up and rolling. It was just right around 40 all day.
3: What time did you guys get out early? Earlier, did you guys? <laughs> I, we <laughs> no, we literally.
1: met up just after eight, and did we you, were. Did you talk about the mistake? What mistake? In timing. Oh, yeah, it was funny
2: because they kind of like overshot how long it'd take to get there on their end. So they had been there probably since, I don't know, like 7.30. They told me to meet, me there, meet them there at 8.15. So we were in just right like right after 8, and they'd already been there for a solid half hour, 40 minutes. But <clears throat> we had everything. So since they were there early, everything was all set up and ready. I had all my stuff in bags, and I didn't even bring a rod. They brought an extra six weight, and I had a rail I slapped on it. and So we were in the water fishing shortly after. We were on the water floating by 8.30, 29.
1: So how much did you row today?
2: I rowed, as a whole, I would say probably 50% of it, give you ever take. But I rowed the upper section a lot. Wait, I mean,
3: you said next weekend you wanted to float it with Chad and I, maybe? And so does that mean you just get to row? I guess so. If you want to <laughs> cash in
1: your
2: <laughs> your <laughs> well, Super Bowl bet.
3: <laughs> I mean, we we could just you're, If
2: you're cashing in your bet, can, yeah. Can, I mean, that's cash what it is. It in and and,
3: and we, we can maybe we'll see. It's supposed to be really nice and warm. Like We need more 50s. water.
2: We need a lot more water cuz we rain. do not. I wouldn't I wouldn't
3: cash it in yet. Waste <laughs> my time?
1: Nah, man. I I wouldn't cash it in if it, if we're getting this this stream report.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to see what happens, but I'm definitely,
2: because that's the first time I've rode since November. I'm sore. Are you? Oh, yeah. Bad. Yeah. I've definitely got to uh, get back to uh, some push-ups and dumbbells this week and get the arms strengthened back up. Start
1: beating off again?
2: There you go. (laughs) Start with something. Yeah, it's... Wow. You know, baby steps, right? Oh, into the float. That was rough.
3: That floats. uh, That's a a consistent back row, because that thing moves downhill fast.
2: Yeah, it is, but when you're back rowing the whole time into rocks... All day long. Oh yeah, that's what I mean. Ninety yeah. percent of it, you were rowing into rocks because it was that it was that low. Do
1: you guys remember that the day we did that and we had the windstorm? Yes. Mm-hmm. That was the worst rowing yes. I've ever done. <laughs> I remember that last
2: stretch too, coming to the takeout and it's real straight and wide it open. It just ripped us and from one side of the river raw, to the other. It just blew us all around.
3: That was a rough day.
1: Luckily, yeah, we oh yeah,
3: wind. trees were branches were that were but maybe five inches thick <laughs> flying <laughs> through the air. <laughs> okay, oh we're not in Kansas anymore. Yeah, it, deb- it definitely felt like Oz. <laughs> yeah. Uh at least you had a anchored down good.
2: We should do that and go the whole way down and take out in the
3: bottom end. Uh in the spring I I've, I've been planning on it. Yeah. Um springtime it's gonna be in the we're gonna go all the way out.
1: So speaking of that <laughs> next we're gonna we- break through we got a couple of things coming up uh, with the podcast in the next couple of weeks. Next week, we have Joe Goodspeed coming on. Mm-hmm. The following week, Bob White. And then the following week after that is our 200th episode.
3: Oh, we're getting the guys back on that we lost. We're that's, getting the, that's, that's good. I'm, the, I'm glad.
1: The two episodes that we lost, we're finishing out the 200 stretch with those two dudes. Yep, yep. So mm. it, uh, it's all coming full circle. That way, come 200,
3: we're whole. Perfect.
1: I can't. <clears throat> and I can't wait to talk to those two dudes. Uh, there's big news coming with uh, at least the guests that I help book. And I'm sure uh, the the guests that Mark booked always has always has a uh, new yes, info sorry. coming. Well, <coughs> kind of since the last time we talked to Tiger through the ice today.
3: Well, I mean, since we talked to him last, I mean, they've, he's he's been you know, out in the shark thing. Yeah, there's lots Nick, of stuff, man. Yeah, there's yeah a lot to talk about with him. <clears throat> Oh, uh, the only other thing I have, can I, do we have any time left? Yeah, man, we got some time. Did something fun last night, you know, first time I ever got to...
1: You went dancing with PJ? Yeah, I went dancing with PJ. <laughs>
3: we'll have to send that picture to PJ so he gets the the joke. Can that be the uh, the picture for the tonight's show? Sure. Oh, yeah, you know it. <laughs> I took PJ dancing. Uh, we had a daddy-daughter dance. and Oh, what an what a experience that is, you know? It's one through four-year-olds, and... Uh, there probably 65 little princesses there at uh at this uh Italian restaurant in Newcastle. And uh oh oh what a good time. Oh man, I I didn't dance at all really. I mean a little bit, you know, you did the little dancing with, you know, the, you know, the couples dancing and you know, get your ass off the, you know, floor kind of dad get over here, you know, dads get off the your ass off the couch and shit, yeah. <laughs> but Man, yeah, the, it was kind of hard to dance because, you know, you can't go because the, the girls are like, back to the table, take our shoes off, back out here. Okay, I, I don't want to wear this now. Okay, I'm going to take this over here. Okay, now we're going to go get this. Oh, no, no, you know, and they're all just like back and forth, back and forth, hear a song, dance for 30 seconds of the song they, you know, really like, and then they're running around like maniacs. And So I found a couple guys that I knew wanted to talk some sports and some, you know. I saw the big dude, uh, he went there last night. Bobby? Oh, yeah, he was there. I talked to him, yeah. And Jake was there?
1: Uh, I think. Yeah, yeah,
3: yep. Jake Moore was there, yep, and uh. Hey, Bother, no last names. Zip it. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> bunch of them, all of them, all of them, dude. It was like it was like a middle sex reunion, buddy. It really was. There were uh, all kinds of them. Yeah, good times. I was uh, just hanging out with guys I don't really kind of know, so. I met some guys last night. Also, uh, I went
1: to a a six year old boy's birthday party. I took my wife roller skating. She wouldn't hold my hand. I was like, baby, this court right here where we're roller skating is where I heard, held my first girl's hand. I said, hold my hand. I hold my hand. She said, no, I'm not doing that. you nuts. <laughs> and then she said, I'm going to fall. <laughs> so it was fun. Uh, I was a little bit sore this
3: morning from roller skating. So. Oh, yeah. No, that's that's stuff. You, muscles you don't use on a normal basis. Yeah.
1: But my son and I didn't dance.
3: There was no daddy son dance. <laughs> she was pumped, you know. Did the whole nine. She. Oh my gosh! One thing, the amount of glitter. That I mean, I swear they they my, when they made my daughter's dress, and it was a beautiful dress. My mom went to pick it out with her. They had a whole day with it, and everything it was great. But they had to finish sewing this dress, and we're just like, all right. It had a huge, giant ball of glitter. And this girl just threw glitter at this dress, (laughs) because there is glitter everywhere in my house. Did you come home and say, (laughs) Abby, I did not go to the strip club. I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Ask Riley. She won't even say, Dad didn't tell say to not tell your mom. But, oh, it was, I mean, and the girl next to her had this, like, a real similar dress, but purple. So there's this purple and gold glitter everywhere over like the guy I was sitting with and he's he's a bigger fella you know he's he's a he's a good-sized guy like i mean big man and uh his his all brand new black suit was just covered in glitter oh it was great but yeah it was uh quite fun you know like i said they at least they fed us and the only problem i would have danced more but there weren't enough chardonnays <laughs> and I didn't I didn't bring in a flask, so you know, I should have you know I'm thinking about it. You should have showed your daughter what a real high school dance was like. bringing them flasks <laughs> <Yeah>. and newbies. <laughs> yeah, I know. I gotta go this, to the bathroom. This is what we're doing in the bathroom, all right? Yeah, I gotta go to the bathroom. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this is how your dad rolled. Maybe
1: not a real high school dance, but every dance we went to.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's gonna be plastic flask that way it doesn't set off the uh any alarms.
3: A bunch of mi- Middlesex's finest were there. Was it multi-school dance? No, no, just Middlesex. And it was—it's not actually even sponsored by the school. It's sponsored by four dads who wanted to have a daughter dance with their da- with their daughters. And we're like, what? That's cool, dudes. See, so now, now you're throwing the rest of us under the bus, you dicks. Dudes, we know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. Okay. I recognize most of them. They're all Middlesex guys. Uh, but cool, cool. Yeah, it was a. Uh, they, But they're looking for other people to take over. And I was like, <laughs> no, no, no. I looked over at the guy that was, I was talking to, hanging out with the night for the night. I was like, hey, why don't you tell you and your wife? I'm going to tell your wife that she should take over. You should take over. It's like, dude, if you do that, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: oh, my. We're running out of time here? We are running All out right. of time. When we come back, we'll be with our guests. Yep. And we are
1: back with Johnny King. What's happening, man? How you doing?
4: Hey guys, uh, nice to be here. I'm doing great.
1: That's great to hear, man. I love you. You have a great radio voice. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so can you um, give us a little background on uh, on yourself?
4: Yeah, sure. I am um, I am a born and raised native New York City boy. Uh, grew up here. Was born here. Have lived here my whole life. Had a brief stint of living in Boston, but pretty much um, a native New Yorker. And for some crazy reason, having nothing to do with any interest in my family, I started fishing when I was about 11 because a friend of mine uh, was a bass fisherman. I think I saw a magazine um, and a fly rod maybe when I was 12. And so began a lifelong obsession with fly fishing and fly tying. Um, And now as an adult, I... Have a lot of jobs. I'm a professional jazz musician. I'm also an intellectual property lawyer, and maybe more than anything else, I'm a fly-tire and fly fisherman. And there's a lot of stuff in between, but <laughs> that would take longer to answer.
1: So, being a native New Yorker, the biggest question is Mets or Yankees?
4: Um, you know, I grew up being both a Mets and Yankees fan. It would go, and even when the Mets were awful, I loved them. Um, And, you know, now I'd sort of, now I'm sort of, I'm kind of ambivalent between the two. I'm not as crazy a sports fan uh, as I was back then because I pitched all through high school. So, Um, but, you know, fly fishing, honestly, uh, kind of eclipsed my interest in other sports. I became that obsessed with it.
1: I hear you, man. I was a a total Browns fan and tribe, but uh, now now fly fishing, I, I maybe watched two tribe games last year.
4: Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's funny and I don't know if it's whether it's a sort of a growing up thing because I was pretty militant about being a sports fan and a Knicks fan all through like college, graduate school and then I don't know, fly fishing like I said just kind of took up all the space in my brain for for mm. for recreation.
3: So we're, uh, you know as a kid did you have to travel even to the bass fishing? I mean to get outside of New York?
4: Yeah, so the funny thing about New York is New York City is actually a great place. Uh, It's a great launching pad for fly fishing because a lot of it is very accessible. You can fish for, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but stripers and blues, right? In New York Harbor, you can fish for bass in Central Park ponds. My principal exposure when I was a kid um, was that my parents uh, had a family house up in Connecticut, in Newtown, Connecticut, which people would know other than it was the scene of that awful tragedy, the Sandy Hook um, school uh, tragedy. But Newtown, Connecticut had all kinds of ponds, and of course, I was a little kid. I didn't know how to drive, but I'd walk a mile to the ponds. There was a little trout stream called Pond Brook, and I flailed around for a pretty long time with a fly rod before I kind of figured out how to cast. You know, before that, I was uh, putting on waders and wetting down the lawn and, 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 and collecting night crawlers, but once I sort of switched to a fly rod around 12 or 13, I really never looked back. And, um, so it was around there in Connecticut, there was a pond that in retrospect, I think this pond would be calling it a half acre would be an exaggeration, but I used to get some bass out of it. And there was of course the one giant bass that swam around them that I never caught. He's probably still there mocking me, <laughs> but you know, who knows? He was probably three pounds, but back then he looked like Shamu the whale. So, um, so yeah, you know, it was, uh, uh, really there in Connecticut that I sort of got my feet wet, so to speak.
2: It was it that point you started tying flies to?
4: Yeah. So, so the thing is fly fishing seems so exotic and difficult to me. So, you know, obviously, uh, I don't know how old you guys are, but I had no access to YouTube videos, anything. So I bought this book. I don't know if you remember, there was a famous fly tire, uh, named Dick Taylor, and he wrote a book called Fly Fishing for Adult Beginners. And I read it and I thought, I must be doing this wrong because I'm not an adult. This must be how you cast if you're an adult. I wonder if there's like a special way to cast if you're a kid. And then I saw that he was tying flies. So back then there was the herders catalog. I would paw through that thing and I'd plead with my parents to order something and I'd lie in and wait, and, you know, it would come with the feathers and the vice. And I got some tying books, I'd say probably when I was maybe 1213 and um the books i remember most were Paul jorgensen was a very famous catskill fly tire amazing fly tire for traditional catskill patterns and other stuff and whatever his i thought you know as a lot of new fly tires thought you had to have the exact materials right so oh my god my thread is tan it's not brown or uh he says to use a synthetic dubbing called celex so you know i would look through every catalog and I'd find out where it was. But, you know, in a way it was a great way to learn because I had to kind of stumble through it and figure it out on my own. Um, and while it took longer, I think that you develop your own hacks, your own workarounds that stick with you. I think somehow I learned how to do a whip finish when I was 13 and I've never touched a whip finish tool in my life. So there's some benefit to, to kind of figuring it out on your own and not just sitting there and watching your favorite tire tie on YouTube. You know, I kind of miss the days of learning from books and magazines and stuff.
1: I will say that I'm old enough to remember the days before YouTube, but not, not old enough to remember the days of reading books. Right. <laughs> so um, I didn't learn to whip finish until I was probably 27 years old. And I started tying flies when I was like, I don't know, 13 or 14 like you you know
4: and you're, I, you're probably just doing a half hitch right i
1: just did like a like a clinch knot and put the loop <laughs> really put the funny. loop over the uh the eye and pulled it tight and, uh, but it replied but, to... but
4: the thing is with all of that stuff is um is the, the like we cherish those books i still have some of those books they're beat up and you can see where i scribbled on them i mean i was 13 years old and and i i could still go back and learn so much from those books Um, because of the time that people took to, you know, it wasn't a little two minute clip where you don't want people to be bored on YouTube. It was someone saying, here's how you tie down, you know, mallard slip wings or whatever it was. You know, I remember tying a lead wing coachman. So, um, but yeah, you know, fly fishing has a good literature. I hope that never disappears from it.
1: I, I'm the same way. Um, like I said, I, I was more of a, I learned by pictures and the Orvis guide to, beginner flies I think was the the first one that I learned from
4: that's a great one that's I think it's Tom Rosenbauer's book I think I think yeah. you're correct
1: yep.
2: now on your way right now do you tie more freshwater or saltwater flies
4: uh, 100% depends I uh, and this completely influences all my like incredibly ridiculously strong opinions about fly tying tools but it is absolutely normal if I'm you know today was sort of a mellow Sunday I didn't really leave, leave the house much I might tie like a seven inch bunker fly. And the next thing I'll tie will be the size 18 blue and like absolutely no rhyme or reason to it. And I hate tying the same fly, uh, twice in a row. So if I tie my 18 blue wing dollop, I'm like, yeah, hey, you know what? I need a Hendrickson. I need a sand deal. Uh, oh, I saw a cool trout space fly on YouTube. So, no, it's, it all depends unless I'm going fishing the next day or something. If I'm just sort of tying to stock the boxes or as is often the case to supply other people, I'll just do it randomly.
1: Johnny, you and me could be the best of friends. <laughs> I, I tied four inch game Same changers. Deal. I tied four inch right. game changers today and then followed them up with a uh, number four mop flies. Just, just yeah, because. <laughs> because the thing is,
4: right. You're doing a game changer, right? You're, you're putting all that stuff on chanks and you're like, okay, I just did five shanks for this one fly, am I going to do another five and another, you know, four flies, you're into it for 20 shanks.
1: Exactly. And you're into it for four hours.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, even Blaine takes a long time, time, those things. So, and I love fussing over flies too. Um, you know, sometimes I'll get obsessed with a fly, like a squid fly and I'll tinker with it. Then I'll come back two hours later. and I'll say, Ooh, it's a little wide in the midsection. And, you know, before you know it, I have like three or four fifteen minute sessions on one fly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever trim one way too much till it's down to nothing?
4: Oh, uh hell yes. I've done that many times. <laughs> I used to I remember when I I had like a little hiatus in fishing um when I went um moved up to Boston for law school. And then I was playing in a band because I said I'm a musician. The vibes player said, hey man, I like to fish so I started fishing with him. And we went out with a spin rod two or three times. I said, I got to get my fly rod again because I hadn't really fly fished in three years. So I decided I was going to learn how to um, tie bass bugs. And there used to be a couple of videos at that point of how to tie bass bugs. And I had tied muddlers and stuff, but you know, this really complicated stacked ones. And Jimmy Nix was his great, I think he was from Texas. And I tied some incredibly elaborate, you know, Dahlberg divers and bass bugs. But I would come back and I'd trim and I would like, ooh, look, the right side's a little. And before you know it, you know, my big fat bath <laughs> bug is looking looking like, you know, a sand eel or something.
2: <laughs> so at this point now, what's your preference? Tying with natural materials or tying with synthetics?
4: So, so that, I, I love this question because I have been asked this many times. And I really like flies that use both. Um, I just think that there's... People, I mean, first of all, you should tie with whatever makes you happy, right? But I really would never pledge allegiance to either of them. So there are beautiful natural materials. People love to say natural materials don't swim well. But you know what doesn't swim well? Polar bear, which is like the most prized natural material. And there are some synthetics like these squimpish fibers um, we were talking about before um, that swim as well as bucktail. So I just like using materials for the property they have. But but whether by design or not, when I look at the patterns I've come up with through the years, they almost always have some combination of both. Like a kinky muddler has a completely synthetic head, but most of the time I was tying it with a bucktail and saddles because those different sets of materials would let me accomplish different things. You know, synthetic, I could spin a dense head. Um, and it would have certain properties and lay back a certain way. Whereas I wanted something really soft and mobile for the tail. That's why I use natural materials. But same thing on a trout fly. I might fuss with like CDC and the most high end white and gold hackle, but I might tie the body of a piece of twisted xelon because I know if I twist that xelon up and cord it up like a serendipity, it's going to sink better than any natural material I use. So it's always about their properties and not. I really do not have preference. And I have friends who are absolutely devoted to one or the other, like wouldn't even think of putting plastic on their flies. So you
1: know. speaking of the, the squimpage fiber and your, uh, your kinky muddler, have you ever, um, substituted out the, the hackles for squimpage fiber that's a little bit longer than the bucktail to do the, uh, or is that yeah, just I, not the properties of what no, you're No, no, no.
4: I, I used, uh, so with respect to the kinky muddler, the original pattern I tied, which I think was about, and I just kind of stumbled on it, it was bucktails and tented saddles. And I still do that. I crank those things out for, a, um, I don't know if you guys know, there's a there's a you know, sort of a boutique rod company called uh, Beulah, and that mm-hmm. uh, makes great spay mm-hmm. rods. The owner of that is a really good friend of mine, and of that company, and we've traveled and fished a lot. And I've been supplying him with rooster fish flies for years. And they always have the bucktail and the tented saddles because that works for the sardine um tying them. But craft fur works great, and fox fur works great. The thing about these squimpish fibers, which were sort of discovered by my buddy David Nelson, is it's sort of like craft fur on steroids. So it's naturally tapered because the just the way the material lays, there are shorter sort of staggered length fibers in it. But it's a little thicker and a little stiffer, than craft fur, but probably not as stiff as bucktail. And it's, and it lays out perfectly. So I could tie a fly that's two inches long or 10 inches long and it swims incredibly well. If you uh, apply it the right way, the thing about a fly like the kinky muddler, but to me, any fly is it's all about the mechanics of the fly. And the whole principle of that fly is to have density up at the head and then some really mobile materials at the back. Cause, um, Uh, It's sort of a principle of fly design, and this is one of the first things I learned hanging out with Bob Popovich is when you have that bulk up front, and let's say you're – and then, you know, whatever it is trailing off the back, like a saddle or bucktail, there's something about the way that water sweeping over a bulky, uneven head will make the back of the tail kick. It's like creates a little vortex beyond the head, and so I don't know. Since you guys are in Western PA, maybe you guys are steelhead fishermen, but if you think about how many – steelhead flies somebody tries to call you know like an intruder or something someone wants a cut co- you tie it with a, a some kind of collar up front it's going to deflect the water so that the saddles trailing back are going to kick That the, the key to a kinky muzzle is to have super density up front and real sort of sparseness and mobility at the back
1: yeah johnny we we do steelhead fish a little bit but we're more musky fishermen so we understand the the principles of the bulky head up front, which uh, in turn does the same principle as what you're doing with the kinky muddler.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if you guys are musky fishermen, I'm sure you're familiar with Blaine Chocolates Patterns. Yeah, a little with bit. Blaine, <laughs> yeah, right, so, so Blaine, um, even before he was tying Game Changers, you know, he had, uh, what did he call those guys, T-bones, right? Mm-hmm. So they were still on, on multiple shanks. But the key, I actually saw him at the fly tying symposium in November, and we were messing around at the, uh, there's like a little fly testing tank. It's like a, you know, maybe 10 foot by five foot little pool. And he had a great one, a hybrid game changer. But what was so cool about it is he would pull it, that bulk would create whatever resistance uh, it did on the strip, and then the tail would kind of jackknife and spin around. And he was saying to me, that particular action for those particular fish was killer i don't know the first thing about musky fishing i have pike fished but but yeah I, I, all Bufords and all those musky flies all those like big warm water predator flies so many of them have bulk up front but the thing that the thing about bulk up front is here's here's sort of the difference between let, let's say a way the way a musky fisherman might approach it and a striper might uh, fisherman might approach it where stripers are like trout, they tend to be selective to particular baits because we get these bait, bait migrations, and different bait behave differently. So, like a bunker is a big, wide-bodied fly. When I say wide, I mean sort of top to bottom. It's got a big, deep belly. It's actually side to side, pretty thin.
1: So, but if tall. you watch them, what'd you say? So, kind of tall.
4: Yeah, exactly. They look like a herring or or a shad, like a gizzard shad or a sardine in Mexico. But, you know, the head of a bunker doesn't breathe like bucktail does. But what what it does do is you have this tail that just wiggles like crazy when they're freaking out and a striper bluefish is chasing them. So that was the first kinky mother I tied. I was like, somehow I got to get this bulk up front so that tail is going to wiggle and back, whether I'm just stripping it gently or, you know, I put the rod under my arm like you do for roosterfish and you're cranking it back. As fast as you can. Obviously, you have to also ensure that the fly is going to track properly. So, let's say you're you're stripping as fast as you can. You want it to swim straight um, with that kick. But if I'm doing pauses, strip, pause, strip, pause, it'll fly through the bulky head. Will also tend to sort of bob side to side, like you know, almost like a Zara Spook that mm-hmm. a spin fisherman would use. Yeah. Um,
1: and the uh, the kinky muddler, it you can tie it to represent a couple of different baits. Or uh, bait fish, correct?
4: Yeah, I, I tie it. I tie it for everything. So originally, I was tying it for bunker type flies, and then I adjusted it downward to tie little skinny versions, like for sand eels and silversides. Uh, those are small. Sand eels are sort of long, narrow bait fish, but they could be anywhere from three inches to we get a run of ocean sand eels in the fall that could be seven inches, and silversides, which is sort of your generic minnowy type bait eels. Um, but then I started to fish them a lot in freshwater. Like I was, uh, I used to do a lot of pike fishing, um, in Connecticut in the Housatonic river. So you're fishing, let's say, you know, water that's, I don't know, three, four feet deep with these long stringy weeds. And you kind of want a fly that will suspend a little bit. You don't want something that's going to plummet right to the bottom. So I would tie it, you know, and I could tie it since it's pike, I could tie it with these outlandish colors, right? They're all orange and red and all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, that I probably wouldn't use for a striper fly. But what I found is that smaller versions make killer trout flies. The biggest fish that I took on the Delaware River system was on a little articulated kinky muddler, it was maybe three inches long. And this fish was this was an honest to goodness like eight nine brown eight nine pound brown trout.
1: Really? A little three
4: inch fly. Yeah, yeah. It was an absolute monster.
1: So when you articulate or articulate the kinky muddler where, where is the, uh, the break between the front and the back? Are you? So the... so?
4: there's lots of ways you can do it. And these days I'm mostly tying two flies rather than articulated flies, but there's a fly that I have that's commercially available called a kinky zonker. And the way that fly is tied, if you could imagine this, the back half of the fly is essentially an ups- upside down zonker, upside down, meaning that the rabbit strip pierces the, the hook point and is on the, Bottom of the hook shank, right? You follow yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. So it's got a little dubbing or whatever, you know, flashy chenille, polar chenille for the body, and then um that's the whole back of the fly. The front of the fly is a shank. I put a uh, a little tungsten scud weight on the bottom of it to make sure that the whole assembly flips hook point up, and I'll explain why I do that in a minute. Um, wrap a collar of marabou or or. Fox fur, but I like Marabou, and then do the kinky muddler head. So it's basically the head and collar are on the front shank, and the sort of zonker body is on the hook. I don't I don't tend to like to tie articulated flies with two hooks. It's just it feels like overkill to me. They're pretty nasty on the fish, and it's a lot of it's a lot of metal hanging off your fly. Like like one of the reasons I like tube flies is. I can tie, let's say, a four-inch trout fly that looks just like a little, whatever, chub, black-nosed dace, a baby brown trout. But all of that material is going to be pinned to a tiny portion of the tube, right? Much shorter than even a short-shank hook. And then I can have my little hook guide and, um, and hook out the back. Um, but the reason that I like those flies tied hook point up is... I have found particularly big sort of darker, nasty, articulated flies work particularly well after a rainstorm when the water's high and muddy. And I like to chuck them right up onto the flooded bank. So like right in the grass where you'd be standing if the water was down and just pull them off the edge because that's where the fish are sitting right there. They're outside of the main flow because if they were out, if the Delaware is blown out, you know, when the Delaware is blown out, that thing is cranking, right? I would uh, you know, you need to yeah. know what you're doing to drive through a drift boat, but the grass is flooded. You just pull it right off that edge. So I like having that hook point up, so it doesn't snag when I pull it right through that grass.
1: Yeah, man, um, that, that makes total sense.
4: You do the same thing with a tube fly, right? Because yeah. I use these Pro Sport Fisher tubes, and they have this little silicone. It's it's like a it's a it's sort of like junction tubing, but it's tapered. But I can orient the hook any way I want, and if I tie the materials in a certain way, I know it'll ride properly. Even if I uh, point the hook point up, so I can throw it again right onto the grass or right into shallow water, and kind of sneak it into the deeper water, a little hole or something.
2: So, it, oh, sorry, do you you're, you mainly re- using the weight of you know retained water from the synthetics, or do you use uh, any you know lead dumbbell eyes or any additional weight on them?
4: It, it totally depends. So, so like we were talking about the um, pike flies, I definitely, you know, I'm you're talking about using a big hook, let's say a size four ot partridge predator, that has enough metal that it's going to sink the fly, but slowly. Um, trout flies, I actually do like to have some weight in, particularly in the tubes. What I'll do is I'll bury like a little bunk tungsten bead in there or cone. Not at the front of the fly, but it'll actually be buried inside the kinky muddler head. Or I'll slide it on the tube and wrap some marabou or, or, or fox fur or possum fur in front of it in a dubbing loop so you don't see it. Um, but for most of the saltwater flies I tie, I do not, of the kinky muddler style, I don't weight them. You know, if you really want to get down, um, like I fish the, the New York Harbor Sandy Hook, the sort of rips, that that water has some really powerful currents and it's really helpful to get a fly. You know, you might only be in 15 feet of water, but even with a 350, you're not getting anywhere near the bottom with the, with the amount of current as all the water's rushing out of the Hudson river and the East river. Um, so that's why like a clouser could be such an effective fly because it's got such a uh, slim profile for the most part flies that are bulky, do not sink well. Um, there's one exception to that, which is for the trout-sized kinky muddlers. I've been using a different material than what I use on the saltwater ones. On the saltwater ones, I typically use – well, the reason it's called kinky – or the kinky muddler is that um, the material was originally called kinky fiber. Then they changed it to slinky fiber, and now it's blended. They'll call it Farrar blend. But you you guys know the stuff I'm talking about. You can see it in fly shops.
0: Yeah,
4: it's like yeah. every fly shop. So, that material is great for larger flies. It's a little buoyant because it can trap some air, um, but it doesn't hold water. You know, All the water is flicked out of it on the back cast, depending upon um, how densely you tie the head. If you really want it not to sink much, you can really pack the material in there. But there's another material called Sculpting Flash Fiber. It's one of my favorite materials. Mm-hmm. Um, also from the same company, Fisciant, you know, Renzetti and Hairline Um Sell the stuff, and it's in the fly shops. And for whatever reason, it, it feels and looks like other synthetics, but it sinks instantly. So if I tie a, let's say, a three-inch kinky muddler, and I have any kind of reasonable hook on that, the second that thing is wet, it just sucks water up like nobody's business. And it's not enough to make it um, difficult to cast, right? Because I'm, I cast, I could cast these things on a five-weight or on a, you know, a little trout spay rod where it's actually even harder to cast heavy flies. And, um, and there's something about that material just sinks really well. So I've started to use that a lot for sort of mid-sized saltwater fish too. It makes great little squid and stuff. So, you know, it's through all the years of, of trying all these synthetics, I've kind of learned what works mechanically and what doesn't. Do I want it to sink? Do I want it to hover? For the kinky mothers that I tie for the rooster fish in, um, in Baja, the way you're fishing for those is, let's say you're out in a cove, right? I'm talking about when you're in a boat.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: You, the guide will throw out, he'll take a bucket, like a, a like an angled cut Clorox bottle, and he'll put two or three sardinas in it. So you're talking about, let's say, on average, let's say a four to six inch bait fish. And he'll, they're alive, and he'll chuck them out. And it's not like chumming, right? Because the fish are not coming to the boat. Those things jet away immediately. But a you'll see a fish bust, let's say, 60 feet to the right of you and then you'll hear a bus behind you at 20 feet and then you'll see another one at 100 feet so it's a little bit like albie fishing from a stationary boat so the 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 bait fish that you're imitating are swimming close to the surface so i'll tie it with that Ferrar blend and the saddles and let's say you'll fish it with a an intermediate headline like an outbound short or something or any you know any of the sort of quick fire uh fly lines so you chuck your cast out, you know, let's say the fish is 60 feet away, and you're ripping that fly back as quickly as you can. And that fly's probably tracking, you know, I don't know, six inches a foot under the water, and that's just perfect. If you just sat there and let it sink, it would sink, and you could certainly fish a 350 or 400 to get it down. Same thing when you're fishing the beach. Um, so... So ironically, I probably use more weight in freshwater flies than I do in saltwater flies, with the exception of clouser's.
1: In your saltwater flies, will you tie them on tubes ever?
4: Yes, um, not only saltwater flies, but but pike flies. Yeah, there's, and I will also use tubes in a non-traditional way on saltwater flies. So, I like to fish squid flies, which are very very effective for stripers. You don't always see squid. But often you'll catch a striper of bluefish and they'll cough up a squid even you might not have seen a squid for four months and occasionally you'll even hook them on your fly i've I've had them chasing my fly in montauk you know in the fall when you're in the Albi run people think they're just around the, the spring but um i think i impaled one on my clouser in the middle of the summer they're around so but the thing about a squid is a squid has the body of a squid is called a mantle and the mantle of a squid is about two-thirds of the length of the body. You'll often see squid that are tied all wrong. They'll have a little short body and then these long tentacles. But the actual ratio for our long-fin squid are about – they're called long-fin, but it's a misnomer – figure two-thirds body. But the thing is, you don't want it's, to – it's not very effective to have a super-long shanked hook, right? Because a striper will get leverage on that. Yeah. So just, I will often like tie half of the body – on a tube and I'll just bind that tube down to the back of the hook shank. So it's a way of extending the hook shank without having the actual leverage of having a super long hook shank. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds kind of like, um, guys that put shanks off the back of flies, but without the, the whippy action of the shank.
4: Exactly. You could put, you could put shanks off the back of flies or, um, you know what most of us used to do, what, bob popovic still does for beast flies Is he ties on a piece of like 80 or 100 pound mono that works great too the thing about a tube fly is if you have the proper vice for it or the proper tube needle you can tie on it just like a hook you know there's no sort of fussing with trying to tie on something that doesn't feel like a hook but i sometimes use um shanks the thing about a squid though for example is the mantle does not move it's not jointed. squid only moves in two places it's um it swim fins up front and then it's tentacles and back around the head area. The body, the mantle is, um, as rigid as a piece of wood. Uh, so, you know, again, you're, uh, like part of imitation is not just the profile, but how does this thing swim? You know, a sand eel swims like in little snaky Z action, a bunker is totally opposite. It's just the tail that's wiggling. Um, you know how a crayfish behaves, right? Crayfish mm-hmm. tends to jet backwards and sort of draw its, uh, claws in together. So to me, imitation is both the profile and how those things behave, particularly when they're freaked out, when some predator is chasing them.
3: Are you still using a stripping action to get a lot of that action? Or are you using a rod tip?
4: Um, I almost always am using stripping action. You know, I occasionally use the rod tip. It, I find it. I, I don't know what you guys do because you're you're manipulating musky flies differently and you're figure eighting or something. But when you're stripping, if you're using a lot of rod tip, unless your line is really sunk, you can end up with a lot of slack at the wrong time. <laughs> like um,
2: that's a hundred percent. Yeah.
4: You know, and it it sort of depends. It depends on what your what you're fishing for. So you would never do that for a rooster fish because you're for the most part stripping that fly back really quickly on a straight path. You know, trout, you might be sort of uh strip, you know, let's say you're on a drift boat and you're chucking it towards the bank, you know, you're popping it, popping it. And I know that there are some great people, uh, you know, there's the Kelly Gallup method, the jerk strip. But for me, most of it I'm doing with, um, with my left hand while I'm stripping.
1: See, uh, we do a lot of smallmouth fishing as well. And, Mm-hmm, I do a so lot. Do I. I do a lot of the Kelly Gallup jerk strip with my right hand, you know. And but then when you don't, when you with streamers, right? Yes, w- with streamers. And then when they hit it, I will have some slack. So you got to do a little bit of the rod jerk and then strip set. So it's yes. a it's a six and one half dozen or another.
4: Yeah, I think I think it's sort of it's also I guess with the Kelly Gallup method, it's kind of it. You know, are you jerking upstream? Are you jerking downstream? Are you from a boat? Are you you know directly cross current? And now that I've been playing a lot with the spay rod, where I am doing some stripping, I'm not just swinging. It's a whole other, uh, it's a whole other way of dealing with it because you know you're got a skinny little mono running line, and you're sort of stripping on a running line, but you're stripping it as part of a swing. So let's say the you're fishing for trout and you have a little trout streamer, and it's swinging down in a cross current, you might be popping it and then letting the line slip back into the drift. So you may let that fly swing all the way down below you let's say you've made a big you know 70 foot cast you may still have 70 feet of line out at the end of the thing but you might have stripped in 20 feet and let it out during the course of that so it's all just about you know every time i think i figure it out um uh the fish fool me um i've noticed certain really good fishermen i know really good striper fishermen have particular characteristics to their strip and how they can pop a fly um Bob Popovich is amazing uh, retrieving a popper in the surf. You know, it's pretty daunting to go stand with the waves crashing all, all over and you. Have a, and you have a big old popper out there. But he just manages to dance that thing over and around the waves. Like, he, just in the, it's the thing of beauty. And what he does is he puts the rod under his arm. And he'll he's stripping two-handed. And he'll sort of give a little yank with his right hand. But he'll keep tension with the left hand. It's, it's pretty amazing. It's like an art form.
1: So um let's marry some things together here between uh your trout spay and your your striper fishing and, and us all together. Um, sure. we've we have hybrids around here, hybrid striped bass. Right. And I used to swing for them quite a bit. And uh with the mono running line and the skagget head, you know. There's nothing worse than stripping mono running line.
4: <laughs> I'm getting used to it, but you're right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> have you found any any uh any fix for that
4: um you know it's really funny because um so the the two-handed thing is new to me when i say new i've been doing it for like three years and i'm a pretty mediocre caster and once again i have yet to take a a a lesson you know i have friends who are uh i mean i i I went to british columbia in 1998 with jim vinson who's the guy who founded rio fly lines and i was the only guy using a single-handed rod and I remember trying it back then, and these were these hardcore steelhead bums, like, you know, people who hadn't changed their fleece pants in, like, six weeks and had quit <laughs> their jobs and left their wives. And, and um, not Jim. Jim was actually there with his wife, Kitty, who's also a really good fisherman. And, and I was just like, I was like, look at these rods. They're 14 feet, and I'm, I can't deal with this. So I, I steelhead fished in British Columbia with my striper rod. But, um, and how did you compare
1: it mean, to the, the swing guys with the big yeah, long exactly. rods?
4: Yeah, exactly. It just, you know, it seems so exotic to me. But since I've been doing this, I do like mono running line, um, particularly with a Scandi head. You know, I'm talking about like two, three, four-weight spay rods, and I've gotten pretty used to holding it. Um, even, the, even the thin mono line, I actually just came across a product the other day that was really good. Scientific Anglers had a, has a new uh, mono shooting line they call Absolute Flat Mono. It's a little bit like a flat ribbon. And I'm only using 25 pound test, but because it's flat, you can a pinch it against the cork pretty well, even when your hands are cold and it just strips a little better. It doesn't slip through your fingers. Um, but would I want to be doing that with a, you know, a 15 pound striper in a, in a river mouth, probably not. Um, but you know, it's all sort of, it's all, uh, I, the thing is for me, the mono running line is a little bit of a crutch because I'm not that good at caster. And it gives me a little extra distance, which is useful. Um, but so your hybrids, are your hybrids um, in rivers or lakes?
1: Uh, the ones we catch the most are in rivers, but we have them in lakes also.
4: Because cause stripers love swung flies. Yeah. Um, um, you know, there was, uh, I don't know if you guys ever encountered him. He's a little ec- less active now than he was, but there was this kind of legendary fisherman up in Rhode Island named Kenny Abrams, who... Um,
1: I've heard Mm -hmm. the name, but I...
4: Yes, so Kenny was almost like a cult legend. He would dye his saddles these beautiful colors, and he really really sort of focused on flat wings, and that became a very popular, and they were, you know, he might layer six or seven colors of bucktail and saddles um, and tie these beautiful flat wings. And Kenny was an avowed, he used a very long rod, like a 11-foot rod, and he fished like an Atlantic salmon fisherman, you know, he's fishing river mouths and even beach currents and swinging his flies, um, you know, and his whole frame of reference were like the original text for Atlantic salmon fishing. But, you know, on my own, I my, I used to have family up in Cape Cod. And one of my favorite places to fish there was a river mouth, you know, so these are estuaries. And it wasn't a big river, it was maybe, I don't know, 100 feet across or something, 200 feet across at times. But if I just went there, chucked whatever, a Clouser Deceiver out there, and swung it, I'd, I'd get now One of the biggest stripers I ever caught on the beach, I remember it because I have a picture of it. It's <laughs> 1993. We got to the beach. This is the Cranes Beach um, up north of Boston, Ipswich, and I forgot my waders. And I was driving my friend nuts because I was getting chewed alive by bugs. And I was whining and I was like, well, we got to go. I'm dying here. And so I chuck my deceivers, a big blue and white, dece- green and white deceiver, like on a three-out hook. And I'm just swinging it on my old Cortland intermediate line, and then wham. And before you knew it, I'm like weighing to my backing, because this is, you know, a 20-plus-pound uh, striper in ferocious current. So he was in my backing. And I was like, what what's going on? Do, do fish really do this? Like, can fish really swim away this far? And I just, like, held on, and I don't think I strip that fly a millimeter it was a straight swing so it's a really effective way to fish for cuz striper's like to hold in current the way that trout and steelhead do
1: so were the bugs still biting while you were fighting that fish
4: yeah well that's the amazing <laughs> thing so so i'm whining and then of course i catch this fish and i was standing up on a boulder cuz i could it was too cold to wade out so my friend will has to go wade out and land the fish for me you know put down his rod bring it in And, and of course, by this point he wants to kill me, right. Because I've been whining all night and, but somehow we, we've, we've remained friends, you know, whatever. (laughs) Um, so yes.
1: So, um, what, what do you find similar between the, uh, you, you brought rooster fish up a couple of times, uh, between the, the roosters and the stripers. Is there anything you could take from the East coast and take it down to the Baja? Uh,
4: oh yeah. Um, well, first of all, there's fishing and then there's fly tying. Um, and I am no expert. You know, I've I've rooster fished a handful of times and I did catch a bunch of them. But like, I'm not one of these guys. I've caught so many more stripers. But rooster fishing in a lot of respects reminds me of albie fishing because, um, you know, when I say albie fishing, I'm talking about false albacore yeah. uh, here in the northeast. So the deal with false albacore is it's, you know, it's pure sight fishing right you're just chasing busting pods of fish so you're in the boat and you see 300 yards away some turns or some seagulls swirling more likely turns and you rip on over to them and you see the fish charging in formation and you've got to get your fly right in front of them and typically they like a faster strip but it's all about placing the fly in their path right because those fish you know let's say they're porpoising or even jumping but those fish swim 40 miles an hour. So think about, you know, you're talking about leading them. So often, if you if you false cast twice and cast where you were originally going to cast, you could be 60 feet behind the fish. So, I mean, ridiculous, like not even close. Um, so rooster fish, I found, is very similar, although you're doing it from, a, you know, in, in albie fishing, you, the boat rips up there, you know, you take it out of gear and you get your cast out as quickly as you can. Rooster fishing, um, a lot of times you're just in a stationary boat, but because they're live bait fish that you're throwing out there, they're swimming, you know, within seconds, they could be 100 feet from the boat. So it's the same thing is you see that rooster comb come up and you have to lay that fly in the path of the fish. If you're throwing at the fish, then you're probably going to miss it, right? So you need to kind of anticipate where they're going. The, more, the difficult thing about roosters is they change directions insanely fast. So if you see them nail a baitfish, like let's say you see a sardina skipping, that comb comes up. I mean, it's like jaws. They nail it and then literally they can turn 180 degrees, like faster than anything I have ever seen. But the other thing that's similar is that they're very picky about fly size and color and profile. Like so... If they're on four inch sardinas, you know, your your two inch or your six inch flies are just not gonna get bit. Say so sometimes stripers are incredibly stupid, right? Like there are times in the fall where you could, you know, I remember a guy used to tease up stripers and bluefish by tying a Barbie to his spinning rod. I'm kidding, I kid you <laughs> not. He's a great guide up on the cape because he was just looking for the action on the surface. So there's that. But more more often than not, stripers are keyed into particular bake fish. So if they're on little sand eels, don't try, you know, big oh. bunker. So, so I find that selectivity about size. That's probably the common thread of the fish I like to fish for. Is that they're picky enough about what they eat that you need to tie flies to, in, you know, in consideration of what it is they eat. It really is match the hatch fishing, and you know, with my favorite fishing in the world is to be stuck by, you know, trying to feed a brown trout for three hours and trying to figure it out. And so I think it's just the same impulse is what's that fish eating? How is it, what is that prey, that bug, that bait fish, that crustacean? What does it look like? How's it behaving? Where's it in the water column? Is it fast? Is it slow? Does it wiggle? What part stationary? Is it dark over um, light, you know, a sand eel is actually kind of translucent along its back and opaque in its belly. Uh Bay Anchovy is is almost see through. O- all of that stuff is relevant. And to me, whether it's a you know, it's a it's a blueing olive or it's a bunker, it's the same impulse. Like I gotta figure that out. That's part of the chess game, you know.
3: I uh, I had the chance to uh, spend a few days up on the Delaware last year and do the dry fly, try to dry fly fish for them and everything. That was, it's very tough. And you were saying, you know, sitting on one and, you know, trying to figure out what, it would, That man, it is, it can be humbling at points. And it, it's, it's a very tough thing. I'm going to definitely going to go back. I caught a few, missed a few of the bigger ones that were, uh, you know, I kind of, I got them to come up, you know, and switched a few things. But man, that's, that's a, that's a hell of a good time though.
4: W- were you on the West Branch, East Branch, do you know?
3: Uh, I, yeah, oh. I did, I did floated uh, the West two days, the East one day. Uh, so I got to see quite a bit of it. It was was a beautiful, beautiful place, and the the fish are smart.
4: (laughs) The fish are really smart and really big. Yeah, real big. I actually, you know, because I fished out west quite a bit, and I think the average size of the fish in the Delaware is comparable to, certainly comparable to some of the best western rivers, but we don't have the same numbers, so the Missouri is filled with big, picky fish, but you know, if you miss this fish, you can't feed this fish, you wait another 15 feet and you might have another target. Sometimes in the Delaware, you might have one target per mile, you know, like it's just not a, it's not a place that you go and bail fish. But the thing is, so, um, like one of the toughest, uh, one of the toughest circumstances on the Delaware is the West branch gets the most pressure and truth be told, it's probably my least favorite of the three branches because of that. Um, But in the middle of the summer when it's 90-something degrees, the Upper West is always really cold and there's a really predictable sulfur hatch and you absolutely will see rising fish and you absolutely will get humiliated by them. But when (laughs) you fool one of those fish or, you know, without disclosing spots, I can think of times this summer where there are a bunch of fish, nice fish rolling, I would say all in the kind of like 18, 19, 20-inch range. And I was pulling my hair out trying to catch them. I'm like, Like, man, these fish have probably seen 500 sulfur imitations in the last two hours. So I found one like just nosing up right next to a rock, like under the trees. I'd say he was maybe an inch and a half off the bank. And there was a little divot in the rock that gave him just like a little, you know, it's just sort of the classic thing. Like he found that place to hide. And it was clear to me nobody else was noticing this fish. So I went and I got him. And that was probably my, it wasn't even that big a fish. It was 18 inches, but it was probably my favorite fish of last year because amid all the chaos and the pressure, I found kind of like one unharassed fish and I figured out the seam he was feeding on and I did a good presentation. You know, that for me, that like makes my whole day. I, I could get skunked in a day and have that two minute um, experience and think I had a great day.
1: That was it? It was just an 18 incher? Yeah, yeah, but it was just...
4: <laughs> Well, but that's, on the Delaware, that's pretty standard, right? Like, you catch more 18-inch fish than you do 12, you, I never catch 12-inch fish on the Delaware. I'm, Did,
1: I'm sure, it, it's, but over here on Western it, PA, that that's still nice, a nice fish, oh, you know? <laughs> oh, I'm not, I'm, I'm, yeah.
4: I'm thrilled with it, but what I'm saying is, it's, you know, I've, I've caught lots of fish over 20 inches that were not as satisfying as that one, because that time I kind of figured it out, what he was eating and where he was eating, the, um... But also, you got to remember when you're going head hunting on the banks, you're not going to find. Those are going to be the bigger fish, right? Bigger fish occupy certain spots. You could. There are places where you could go out into a riffle and see little fish popping and catch, you know, a lot more, a bunch of small brown. Tree. Although I'll tell you, those ten inches will humiliate you too, right? Like sometimes they're there. But eighteen inch fish are very, very common on the Delaware, and that's not that I'm not. I have no bragging rights about that. Anybody who fishes up there regularly has caught plenty of 18-inch fish. It's just the way that's, you know, there are fewer of them and they're big. Uh, at least the browns, the rainbows are smaller by and large.
1: So um, uh, you, you had also mentioned swinging flies for trout. Mm-hmm. Are you doing that on a D?
4: I am. So that's like, so here's the thing about the Delaware. It sort of like goes hand in hand with what we were just talking about. So I'm like a complete and total dry fly fanatic, right? Like I will spend hours looking for my single rising fish and my buddy, David Nelson, Mr. Squimpish of the squimpish fibers, he's 10 times more patient than I am. So if he sees fish, right, he'll, and let's say he does a cast and he puts it down, he'll stand there for 45 minutes waiting to see if it or an hour waiting to see if it comes up again. And I'm not quite that patient. But my point is there's a lot of downtime on the Delaware where there's no hatches. There are no hatches. Like very early in the mornings in general, you don't, you might find garbage feeders, but I don't, you know, it's not really productive or in the middle of sunny, sunny days. So, um, and I don't really like nymph fishing. It just, uh, I don't get my yaya's out of nymph fishing, <laughs> which is my own hang up. I have lots of friends who do it, but you know, it's sort of like some guys like bait and some like like spinning rods. I don't really like nymph fishing. I have found that the, the, um, uh, trout spay thing is a great thing to do during the downtime. And frankly, it's definitely less effective than nymphing. I was fishing a part of the lower West branch last year and I was getting a fish here and there and my buddy was literally bailing them on nymphs. Um, you know, because he was, he was drifting a stone fly through a chute that had a whole bunch of nice rainbows in it, but the thing that is so great about the trout spay thing is it makes you look at the river completely differently because now i'm looking for good swing water versus you know hunting the banks looking for a nose on the bank it's a completely different mindset um uh, like i have a little kick boat a water master i use so i'll i'll come to let's say a long run let's say it's a knee-deep run you know not too fast not too slow like a good pace for swinging I'll, um, I'll park my boat down and walk, you know, 200 yards up and I'll swing my way down. Um, so it's, it's proven to be really effective for the, and really fun for those downtimes. The other thing is, is that it's, uh, I do a lot of stripping, uh, like I was saying with the swing thing. And it's really, a, I found it effective in the higher water when you can't really wade out too much. You sort of feel like you're confined to, you know, finding someone with a drift boat, I find that you can kind of poke along the banks because you don't need any back cast room and, um, you know, chuck your streamer out there 50 feet and then sort of swing it in and pop it into the bank. And sometimes it's been effective. Though My last fishing trip up in the Delaware was in October and um, I finished the season, you know, early morning at a way in the Upper West Branch, water gets dirty. Water sort of turns over from the reservoir and gets dirty up there. And I got two great fish, like 17 and 20, just hucking my little tube fly bait fish out there with my spare rod and kind of popping it along a deep channel, you know, half swing, half strip. So it's opened up a lot of possibilities for me. Plus, like everything else in fly fishing that's like way overly complicated, there's all the, you know, hoo-ha about the lines and the heads. and the, So it's just like another silly, nerdy little thing to get into. Um, to occupy me when I'm not finding fish. <laughs> oh,
1: It's a totally different language when you're trying to get into it. You know, what's oh God, a, what's, a what's a scanty skag, and what's a skagget, you know? Exactly. You have first no idea. All, you
4: got to <laughs> learn how to pronounce skagit, right? Exactly. You know, so you say you say skagit or whatever the first time in scandy
1: Yeah, I, and, got, I got laughed at when I said skagget. I said, oh, but, what but, do you
4: mean? <laughs> but the thing that you have to remember, like this is what I realized, so... You get compulsive and like, oh my God, I think I got a line that's 25, two grains heavy for my rod. And as my good buddy Simon Gos- Gosworth, who's like the best spay caster in the world, says, um, that's the weight of a credit c- That's the weight of a business card. Like the notion that some mediocre spay caster like me is going to really obsess over the line pairings, you know, you want a balanced rod. But if you're a fisherman, you get out there and you just figure out a way to make it work, right? You might not be doing it the most efficient way, but you have this, you know, 11, 12-foot rod. You're basically trying to do sort of, you know, energized roll casts. And if you're with a single-handed rod, you'd be flopping it out. You know, you've got a big weighted streamer. You'd be flopping it out 15 feet in front of you. So you have this big rod, like one way or another, you're going to get it out there. And, um, and it's just, I have to remind myself of that too. I'm like, Oh, I'm blowing my anchor. Oh, my sweep is not inclining at the right angle. And then, <laughs> you know, it, it's like everything else, you know, you, if you're self-conscious about it and thinking about it, you're probably going to mess it up. But I've noticed the second I get a yank or I land a fish, all of a sudden my casting is really good <laughs> because I'm not even thinking about it. I'm fishing, right? I'm not casting. So well, not yeah, we're mention- going tomorrow. We're actually going to go to some of the eastern Pennsylvania streams to try them out with our spay rods tomorrow.
2: Yeah, and not to mention too the weight of the fly and what you're throwing on there is going to make a difference on that too.
4: H- hugely, hugely, you know, and so so that's another thing is like for someone who loves to tie flies like me is now I got to figure out what flies are going to have the properties for a good spay fly versus you know a sandeel for a striper or or a or a weighted sculpin pattern, let's say, for tri- not that not that you need space specific flies, but there are certain properties I'm tying into my spay flies that I think work better than um, than other flies. I would I like regular streamers that I would tie. It's really fun. Do you guys do it for the for the uh, like the eerie tribs out where you are?
2: In all honesty, we haven't really fished steelhead for. We
3: used to when we I
2: mean, well, growing up.
3: That was what we cut our teeth on more or less uh, fly fishing was on steelhead, but we kind of moved out of that, and we strip I mean, streamers for, like, brown trout and I mean, you know, On my
2: own, I mean, when I stopped fishing for them three, four years ago, I was fishing 11-and-a-half-foot, you know, scadget head and Yeah, with, right. you know, T11 and what have you, sink tips on them.
4: Right. But I mean, I'm you know I I'm, I really do like the sort of I uh, I just got a new trout spare rod. I have well I get I'll trade flies with my buddy from Beulah, and they have some beautiful new trout spare rods. I also got my hands on a Sage two eight, hmm. um, and it's you know a little ten foot nine inch rod weighs nothing. So it'll be interesting to see how it works tomorrow in these smaller PA rivers.
2: And you throw in um, sink tips with them then too.
4: Yeah, probably, but I'm not going to throw really big. You know, it's winter. I don't really need some big honker of a fly. I've even found that the Scandy heads, the shorter Scandy heads, like Rio has one that's 22 feet, throw a sort of medium-sized streamer, fine. But you know what they are? Is they are little zonkers with like a little kinky muddler head, but they're all of, you know, two, two and a half inches long. So they don't hold much water. Um, But I'll see what it's like, you know if I had my druthers, I wouldn't skagit fish. That feels really lumbering to me versus the Scandy cast feels more like the, kind of has the grace of a cast that I'm used to, it's less of a lob. It's sort of, skagit casting to me is like when I'm fishing from a boat in New York Harbor with a 350 grain head, and I'm just hucking it out there and hoping it doesn't, you know, impale impale the side of my head. Like, as long <laughs> as it's out there and nobody on the boat is hurt, um, you know, um, I'm feeling like I did my job. See, that
1: that goes back to, like, our own personal styles. When I was skateboarding, I was like big and clunky and I do just do crazy stuff, but like be lumbering about it. And that's why I love skagit fishing. Cause it was the same way. It's yeah. Right. It, you it, know,
4: there is something satisfying about that weight, right. The whole thing kind of, it's like this, it's like this slow paced slingshot. But for me, because it's still relatively new to me, when I throw a scandy line, the, the just the the way the D loop forms, the way that it unfurls, feels more like a conventional, um, like casting a trout rod or let's say you know bonefish rod. Whereas, like I said, if I'm fishing a big clouser or a big bunker imitation in New York Harbor, you know I'm I'm probably only hucking at 40, 50 feet because what I'm going to do is I'm going to throw it out on the up current side of the rip and then i'm going to feed line into it to let it kind of swing down into the rip and then start stripping it when i think my fly is in that area so you know you do what you got to do right i'm no champion caster so uh like i said once it gets out there hopefully i know what to do when i'm bringing it back in
2: <laughs> so do you in turn with the 2 handers uh swing wet flies and skate dries or anything of like
4: that so i haven't um I haven't, I've tied some, some cool little dry flies with little like foam prows on them. Mm. And, and I haven't had the courage to do it because I'm, but I know the circumstance. There's a couple of spots, particularly on the main stem in the Delaware, where at dusk, the bugs get really active. And I think that a skated fly would work. What I, I definitely caught some nice trout, um, like, you know, rainbows up to 18 inches on swung wet flies tending to be bigger like 8s 10s not like 14s and 16s but my latest thing is i've been fishing a a little streamer like a smallish pine squirrel zonker let's say maybe two inches and trailing like a little soft tackle off the back of that
0: and either swinging
4: it or stripping it and on the delaware it's a fascinating thing uh the rainbows do not like streamers period like (laughs) you oh it's
2: just
4: well what no it's you'll catch rainbows on the soft tackle and browns on the streamer it's like almost like i mean so this browns will also hit the soft tackle or like you know uh rubber legs or something but but i almost am never fishing a conventional pattern it's always some weird tweak to a pattern just because you know just because yeah exactly because that that's because it's more fun that way for me so um but I have a lot to learn, and that's why I think I'm so into it, because I'm looking at this water. I'm saying, I know there are fish in this run, or I know there's fish in that little, that little depression right out in the middle there. I've floated by that sucker a million times, have seen fish rising about around it. And so I'm just figuring out, how do I present my fly? It, to me, it's just like incredibly fun. Except when, you know, you've been swinging for four hours and haven't gotten that tug. But then that just makes me like a steelheader, right? Except it would be four weeks.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, So. John, we've hit on a lot of things. And, we know, we've kind of touched on Baja and just where all you fish. But where all have you been? You said you've traveled quite a bit to fish and we really haven't hit on all that yet.
4: Yeah, so I, um, there was a period of time where I used to travel a lot to fish, um, and I did a lot of flats fishing. I had, had this period of time when I was making my transition from Boston back to New York. Like I said, I lived in Boston for about five or six years. And um, I was single. And because I was on the road a lot as a musician, I had tons of frequent flyer miles. So I must have been to Belize five times, Mexico five times, um, Venezuela. And I did a lot of tarpon, permit, and bone fishing um, in all those places. And snook fishing. And absolutely loved it. I loved baby tarpon fishing in the mangroves. I don't know. I don't think I could do this now, but I remember I went to a place in Venezuela. I don't even think that it, well, first of all, you can't really safely travel to Venezuela now. It's the country has so many problems, but um, there was a place called Rio Chico, which was sort of a huge lagoon with a lot of baby tarpon and snook. And I think one day I caught 25 tarpon and 15 snook. And these were all, you know, five to 10 pounds, but it was absolutely awesome. And I sat there with my rod, you know, 97 degrees flinging at the mangroves. Um, I loved bone fishing. I love that flats environment. It has a little bit of the feel of dry fly fishing to me. Um, And so I did a lot of that. I've done the, you know, I mentioned the Baja rooster thing. Um, I spent a lot of time up in Cape Cod, which was not just uh, stripers and blues, but there was a period of time where, there were a lot of smaller bluefin tuna out in Cape Cod Bay and we'd go catch or at least try to catch those on our fly rods. I didn't catch a lot, but I caught a handful. It was really exciting, sort of like souped up albie fishing. Um, And I have spent a lot of time out West. I used to have a sister-in-law who lived in Missoula. Um, So uh, my wife and I used to go out and visit her and I would fish those streams and, you know, also down Madison in the park. And uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine retired from, Um, Rio fly lines he was one of the chief engineers there named John Harder he's one of the great fishermen that I know and I went out and did the Henry's Fork in the Missouri with him I've done the Missouri a number of times Um, but what I have found is I, I caught my first tarpon in 1993 and I haven't fished for them now in the really much in the last 10 years and I don't know it was like 40 pounds 50 pounds and I just thought oh my god I'm ruined for all other fish and at that point I was still living in uh, Boston, which didn't have the greatest freshwater fishing, but there was in central Massachusetts, there was a little river called uh, the Quinnipox that had like 16 brookies. So the week after I got back, I was hiding behind this rock. I was fishing a little trude. I was back. I was into like trudes and Royal wolves back then. This is so this is close to 30 years ago. And I was catching six inch bro- brook trout and I was so excited And I realized I was having every bit as good a time as when I caught the tarpon. It's like all the context, right? For me, you know, figuring out where to catch those brookies was as exciting as tangling with this big wild fish. So, so I don't travel as much as I used to. I'll probably go back down to Baja. I might go out West. Um, one place I have not fished much other than, um, my one tour of duty up in, up in the beox and Skeena fishing um, with the Vincents is there's parts of Canada I'd like to go. I'm really eager to try the Bow River because I've heard that that's not only can be a great dry fly river, but really good with the trout space. Um, i fished out by you guys, I think. One time I was on a tour with some musicians and one of them liked to fish. I think we stopped. Isn't there a Western PA stream called the Neshanik?
1: There might be. Oh, there sure is.
4: (laughs) That's that's right in our backyard. That's
1: like eight miles from us.
4: And I remember there was a fly shop right on the river. I have no idea. This is a long time ago. It's still there. Right. So we pulled up there, and I was in like the band's van. I'm a jazz musician. Uh Uh-huh. And they said, guys, we just need to chill out and take a nap. And I said, well, I'm going to go fish. And I put on my waders, and I remember the drummers looking at me like, who is this guy that we're touring with? He looks like such an idiot. What are these stupid pants you're wearing? <laughs> but, but I went and waited, and you know, caught a bunch of fish, and then in the, the shanty, I really enjoyed it. I had a great time. It was such a nice thing to do in the middle of like a long, grueling road trip.
1: Did you go um, into the shop at all?
4: Yep, I remember it being a really good fly shop, actually.
1: Uh, Bob, that was the owner. Uh, of the,
4: w- Bob, w- uh, I, I, you know, this was. Yeah. My guess was I can tell you what year this was. This was two. 2002, probably.
1: Yeah, that was year I graduated high school. Bob, <laughs> so, Bob owned it then.
4: <laughs> yeah, it <laughs> he was, does not um, now. But it was a really nice. I remember I I found a bunch of feeding fish and, you know, you can find your little Shangri La anywhere, right? Like I could go to the middle of some city and if I see some carp, you know, snorkeling on the bottom, I'm like, damn, I wish I had a rod.
1: Yes, sir. We hear you about you that.
4: Know, <laughs> y- you know, it's just, it's just, I like it all, but, but. But that that right now, the picky dry fly thing and the trout spay thing are my current obsession. Actually a couple of years ago, I did do I had a pretty good steelhead trip with Jane Shaughnessy from Beulah. Went out to his house and we fished the Rogue River by him and somehow, although I have no clue what I'm doing with the sparrow, particularly this is two thousand seventeen. So I've had some practice then. I got five steelhead in like two or three days. They were not big, but they were steelhead. They were like three to five pounds, and uh, I loved that. Absolutely beautiful river. And, man, those uh, Oregon rivers are difficult to wade. The North Umpqua is the most difficult place. It's almost impossible to stay upright in that river. I was completely intimidated by it.
1: I have a friend who lives but. out there, and he said the same thing. He moved from Rochester, I, New York, out there, and said he cannot stand in the Umpqua.
4: It, it's just – it's de- that place is like – The primeval forest. I mean, and I was out there when the fires are happening, so I'm surrounded by this, like, deep blue-green water. So it's not that wide, right? But it's very deep. It's impossible to stand in. The water's crystal clear, but it's got this tint to it. And I swear, if, like, a dragon or a dinosaur, like, (laughs) keeps swimming downstream, it would be totally (laughs) appropriate because you just feel like you're, you know, you're in, like, the middle of, like, some fairy tale. It was a very cool place. I didn't catch any fish there, but that's like that's some grown up steelhead fishing, you know. And I'm not a grown up, so
3: <laughs> I hear you, man. So you've been mentioning the music thing a little bit. Do you want to get into that just a little bit before we let you go?
4: Yeah, sure. I am. Um, so, so almost as long as I'm, no, actually longer than I've been fly fishing, I've been a musician, and I started playing when I was nine, playing piano you know, some lessons, but largely self-taught. I just became obsessed with jazz as a kid, same way I became obsessed with fly fishing. And I started playing professionally, by which I mean, like, uh, you know, people paying me money to pay in restaurants, and parties and stuff, maybe when I was 15 or 16. And then through college, graduate school, uh, played tons And I sort of, um, I applied to law school when I was in college, completely uncertain about what to do. But I took a year, I got in, took a year off, and came back to New York, actually lived with my folks. And by that point, I was already spending a lot of time on the road uh, with jazz musicians. And, of course, New York City is the place, you know, all of my heroes lived here. And um, when I moved back to New York, I had this great deal with my law firm I started full-time but I couldn't couldn't make it work because I was on the road so much and I got a really good gig with this great player named Joshua Redman whom I knew from Boston and so I went back to my law firm and worked out this part-time arrangement where I would work eight months a year at the law firm uh, which is named Cowan Lee Woods and Latman in New York I'm still there and then spend four months on the road but or on the road, or if i there's back, particularly back in those days, gigs went really late at night, so I used to play at a place called Bradley's. I used to play there a lot, That's where I met my wife and got my record deal there and and that gig started at ten thirty and ended at three thirty in the morning. You get paid, you get home it's four thirty five o'clock, and you're gonna be in the office at eight thirty right so it's just I did that for a while, but it was too much so um so I was on the road a lot, a lot, a lot. And then my first daughter was born in, uh, 2001. My second daughter was born in 2003 and I kind of paired it back. And now most, I still play quite a bit, but I mostly try to not go on the road. I'll travel a little bit, but mostly playing in the jazz clubs in New York, but you know, I'm not going to Europe for two months. I can't say to my wife, okay, honey, you have it. You know, I'll, I'll be back in two months. Um, and, um, and i'm a composer and a jazz pianist and it's just you know to me it's like fishing it's as second nature as getting up in the morning and drinking coffee and breathing and reading and writing it's just part of who i am and uh and it's as i've only played one genre of music my whole life but but jazz is you know jazz there's this century of history in jazz and that's that's for a whole other podcast but uh (laughs) it's my other lifetime obsession
1: so being a jazz composer and pianist. What do you listen to when you're on your way to the to the uh trout stream?
4: Um, I listen to so much music, but I sort of had I tend to have sort of I guess you would say more modern taste, but I'm listening to music sort of largely from the sixties forward. You know, it might be Miles Davis or, or John Coltrane or McCoy Tyner or Chick Corea or Herbie Hancock or Mulgrew Miller or Art Blakey. Um and you know, that stuff. And the funny thing is when I fish it one of the things that's a drag about the Delaware is it's about a two and a half hour drive from the city. And that drive takes no time when you're heading up in the morning. But when the hatch ends at nine o'clock and you get the drip boat on the trailer and you're getting in your car and it's nine thirty and you have like a two and a half, three hour drive home, you need some music to keep you awake. So there's some really modern, like super intense music that I'll listen to, some John Coltrane in particular, and that's how I stay awake on my on my long trips home from the Delaware, because I got to be at work the next morning. <laughs> so,
1: yeah, man, it, it's hard. It, this real life struggles.
4: Yeah, it, exactly. <laughs> the, the pain and suffering of being a fly fisherman.
1: Right? It is. So, yeah, we you know, feel yeah.
4: If only the world knew how we suffered, you know. <laughs> I know.
1: It, it's the thing. My wife pissed and moaned about giving birth.
4: <laughs> exactly. You know, she's <laughs> like she she doesn't know the difficulty of uh, removing uh salmon fly hook from your neck from a bad you know snap key cast i mean please exactly
3: my wife when i when i i come home i'm always tired you know putting the boat away i'm like oh my god i'm so tired i'm ready to take a nap she's like you do this to yourself i'm like this was bred into me i didn't have no choice what do you mean woman like i don't have a, any exactly the it's guys would tell me yeah the guys would yell at me if i didn't go up and make content exactly
4: there you go there you go Yeah, my wife has – see, I've probably been married longer than you. After a while, they just stop saying that stuff. They're just like, whatever.
1: So that's what we have to look forward to?
4: (laughs) Yes, yeah, that's that's what middle age will bring you. It (laughs) doesn't diminish the quality of your relationship. It's just after a while, they realize, like, there's just something wrong with these people. You know, like this fishing thing, I don't get it. But um, whatever. Somehow they've tolerated us.
1: Speaking of that, have you ever tried getting your wife into into fly fishing? I just started this – this crazy adventure lately.
4: You know, do you have kids?
1: I have one that's six. Jay has one that's six and Mark has one that's ten or eleven. She'll be twelve. Yeah, so my kids,
4: kids are my kids yeah. are teeny. I have a sixteen and a nineteen year old. And um so yeah, in the very beginning, my wife is actually complete and total outdoors buff, like even more of a sort of a hiker and camper than I am. And when we first met, we met in this jazz club in New York. And I said, yeah, I'm going down to Florida. I'm going to fish the Everglades. And she said, well, why didn't I come with you? And I was totally alarmed, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, my God. Like, there's an intrusion into my fishing life. And so we get on this little um, flats boat, and we go spend a few nights on this liveaboard boat. And I'm flailing away, and I am not catching anything. And she literally hooks and lands, albeit on a spinning rod, a 130-pound tarpon. <laughs> so I'm like, well, this is just great. <laughs> and we still have the lure, like the bent hooks. And and she actually gave the she's a photographer she gave the um, the guide a rod, and she has some great pictures of this tarpon like midair. You could see the the lure the mirror lure uh, rattling in its mouth. Then she caught a twelve pound snook, and I think I caught like a two pound largemouth bass and a gar. Um, it was like <laughs> so. Then we started to go. We did a couple of trips out to Montana, and she did the drift boat thing with me. And I think she likes the environment. I think you know you people don't understand why as as a close friend of mine once said said to me it's like it's just your single minded focus on this that i can't quite wrap my mind around and so that's like where my wife is but yeah she was she caught she caught a a 20 inch rainbow on the missouri on a trico so she's done it it's just not so much lately and even one of my little daughters she tied some flies with me and we caught some pickerel and bass But uh, they're 16 and 19, so they're on to bigger and better things. It's only we who are stuck in this ridiculous thing, right?
1: Yeah, your daughters are all tied up in the Taylor Swift vortex, right?
4: Yeah, yeah, or (laughs) or other vortexes. One of them is actually studying in South Africa right now, and the other's a freshman in college.
1: Did you tell her Um, how many cool fish are in South Africa? (laughs) I know.
4: know, Somehow that's not the particular draw for why she's at that semester of late school. Dad, stop. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I get a lot of that. I get that from my friends, my family. (laughs) So, uh, but it sounds like you guys know the drill.
1: Yeah, Yeah. man, we do. And like I said, we've been trying to get our wives out. My wife actually learned to row a drift boat. uh, Ooh, that's critical. Only only on a (laughs) lake. Critical. Only on a lake.
4: (laughs) Right, right. But still. The truth is, I don't really know how to row. I know how to row my water master, which weighs 15 pounds. I wouldn't really want me on the sticks if the water was high, but uh, I mean the thing is it, it is the best thing about the best way to advertise fishing for non fishermen is because you're out there, you just see stuff that other people don't you see on I, I mean what I have seen in terms of wildlife in terms of the bears, the eagles the mm-hmm. otters the beavers the all you know uh bobcat uh yeah I mean just like what you see in the Delaware is just amazing, just absolutely amazing. I've seen a snake eat a bluegill and it's just because I'm out there. Right. And yeah. or, or Cape Cod beaches, right? Like we would go to these beaches during the day and they'd have 10 million people on there, but I would have been there at 4:30 in the morning and I would have seen the seals and the dogfish and the stripers rolling and the turns going nuts. Just feel like you could get this privileged view of the world. And because you, you're out there when when other people aren't. When it's raining and snowing, and it's early and it's late, you know, there's crazy stuff happens.
1: So we've talked to a couple striper guides up in your area, like let's say Ian Devlin. For for oh one. yeah, he's
4: an old friend of mine.
1: Um, he had mentioned that there's a bunch of more shark activity up in that area. Have you witnessed any of that?
4: Yeah, I've seen it. I've seen it in a few places. I've seen it out in Montauk i saw it a number of years ago i was with another guy named jason dapra uh ian had I i don't know what ian's boat is now he had a smaller boat so he was seeing him inshore um by the way ian is an absolutely insane fly caster like nothing you've ever seen just for the record but um yeah it's a pretty amazing thing i was fishing when when big stripers like the big adult stripers are on big bunker and i'm talking about like 16 inch fish bait fish They're crashing through those, right? And so, you know, you're talking about 30, 40-pound stripers crashing, you know, baitfish that that are the size of a good-sized trout. And then all of a sudden, something slices through them that's a completely different order of magnitude. It's like a submarine whales through them, and those are sometimes big sharks. Up on the Cape, they've had some great whites pulling even into, like, I can't remember, it it was one of the harbors, like Sandwich Harbor or something. That sandwich, it was, I don't know, it was one of the the harbors right when you cross onto the Cape, so yeah, they're out there, and part of the reason they're there is because the seal population has exploded. Um, Did you guys do a podcast with Ian?
1: We did a podcast with Ian, and uh, I was trying to think of the other guy's name, Patrick uh, Cassidy, we've had.
4: Yeah, I I don't, I don't, uh, I know who he is, I don't know him.
1: Yeah, uh, but we had Ian Ian, on, and he, he did a great podcast with us.
4: Yeah, he's Ian is extremely knowledgeable. He's also a really good fly tire. Um,
1: yeah, he's, he's, he's quite all we right. We all know each other. <laughs> what you say? I say he's quite all right.
4: The, um, you know, everybody, it's a really small community of people, so I have fished with Ian. I i don't know, I've probably known him 15 years, 20 years, something like that. Um, and uh, But you got to see him cast a fly. It's pretty ridiculous. Huh. Um, he's a fishy guy.
1: And he's casting their um, short sticks now, isn't he?
4: Yeah, well, he designed that along with Mark Sedati, who's another really exceptional fly caster. And I, th- I think that they're not on the market anymore. Um, but I just saw him at the, you know, we have our big consumer show, and uh, and he had another rod that he was using. He's he likes to do things in very unorthodox ways. So he had a short. It was another short rod, like seven to eight feet, very powerful. Using a short-headed uh, fly line, you know, um, it seemed like it had a very powerful tip, so you could throw a sinking fly. And you know, Ian is tying some of those 12 and 13-inch bunker flies. Mm-hmm. So you know, it takes like a certain type of cast caster and equipment to to throw them. But but he's just a he's just a fishy guy. You know, he'll take a spinning rod and go put on a clinic and largemouth bass too. Um, but he's primarily a saltwater guide. He does not do the picky dry fly trout thing he's not as obsessed um (laughs) with it as as i am and and the reason i know ian is through david nelson mr squimpish flies yeah man and
1: like you said you can only be so obsessed with so many different things and i mean
4: it's just a matter of time right
1: yeah you can't be obsessed with the the stripers and the dry flies if you're going to be guiding guiding for one of them right
4: definitely definitely and it's, it's a different you know it's a different thing when you're sort of doing it for a living. Uh, I mean, I'm a quote unquote commercial fly tire in that my pad, I have a lot of patterns that are commercially available, but I'm not tying. And I, to the extent I've done actual commercial tying, it just gives it, it's a different when you're making your living out of it. It's, it's a completely different approach to it. I don't think it has anything to do with loving it any more or less, but Bob Popovich, I remember told me early on in my career, he says, you don't want to mess with, selling your flies you know that's not going to be the best way for you to support yourself you should sort of keep it fun so i have a lot of flies like i said it's nice to get a little extra income from royalties but if you know early i remember i was considering tying for some it was a montana fly shop or something they were like yeah we'd like six dozen size 18 adams Mm -mm. do i really want to do that (laughs) you know i know how to play the piano i went to law school am i really going to do that sit in my room by myself some people are great at it. it's just I don't, I don't get a buzz out of like production tying.
1: No man, I don't, I don't believe in one single bit. I can't like, yeah. like we talked about earlier. I can't tie two game changers in a row, <laughs> let alone eighteen dozen.
4: Right, and then yeah. you're like, eh, hey, you know what? I'm gonna do a little pink collar on this one. I'm gonna do a little red throat on this one, and just making them uniform. Like, that's the whole thing, right? If we weren't fly fishermen, we'd be going out and buying lures and sort of sticking to the whole thing about fly tying. Is, is you kind of get to fish these things that you make on your own terms, right? Maybe they work, maybe they don't. And there's a lot of trial and error, but that's half the battle figuring it out.
1: Exactly. Kevin Van Dam sells a shitload of crankbaits for a reason, but we can tie our own.
4: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and one, one sort of thought on that, which is that there are a lot of guys who tie exceptional flies that, that are like lures. In other words, they're the fly equivalent of lures. My flights have never been like that because I've never been much of a spin fisherman. So I'm not, I'm not like literate. I'm not conversant in how lures behave because I never fished them. And that's, that's not something I'm proud of. That's a, that's a defect in my fishing background. But, you know, again, I'm sure I'd be a better striper fisherman if I really knew how to, you know, fish a bait caster and how to work as our spook. But, you know, I got to spend my time on those picky dry flies on uh, Delaware.
1: Exactly, man. You gotta spend your time behind that ivory, also.
4: It, yeah, exactly. And 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 more important than all of that, I gotta spend my time being, you know, a dad and and a husband.
1: So. Yeah, number one, man. Yeah.
4: You know, so, so so you just don't sleep. That's the key.
1: So hey, Johnny, uh, we've kept you on the phone quite a while on a Sunday afternoon. Is there anything that we haven't hit on that you would like to hit on?
4: Um. No, other than, yeah, just one final thing, because I was thinking about this while we were talking about learning to tie from books, learning to tie from YouTube. Mm-hmm. I've been doing a lot of teaching. Um, I just taught a class over tight lines in New Jersey. I was at the at the big New Jersey show, and that's about 12,000 people. Um, I think that what all people are getting into this realize have to realize is there's no one perfect way to do it. So someone might show you their method of casting or – their method of tying a whip finish it's there's something to be learned from everybody and you should be open-minded about it. But I really do think people should just trust their instincts sometimes to figure stuff out because as I, so just with respect to fly tying, as I see people, you know, struggling to let's say imitate, I'll show them how to tie a kinky mother, how to do, how to apply the materials the way I do. And then they'll say, sorry, man, I just, you know, I put it on this way. I said, who cares? You accomplish the exact same thing. I know a great fly tire who wraps backwards. He doesn't, in other words, he doesn't wind the thread away from him. He winds it towards him. You know, people tell him that's wrong. All I know is his flies look great because that's what his instinct is. So it's fun. There's no stress associated with it. And I think people should like trust their instincts to just kind of figure it out. If you want to be one of those people who just ties conventional patterns great. If you want to try your own thing, try those crazy things, because some of them might work. There's no, nobody's got to figure out. Nobody's method of fly tying is more right than someone else's. So I think that's very important for people to realize because it looks a little daunting. I'm going through the same thing with the spay thing. There's all the vocabulary. And did I get this right and that right? I don't know. But you know what? I went out and I stood on the side of a river and I caught a fish. So, and I did it with a spay rod. So to me, I'm spay fishing, you know?
2: No, and that's 100 percent right there's a lot to be said too for when you tie it yourself and you feel how much materials you're putting on there and when you do it wrong so i mean that yeah, trial exactly. and error by actually feeling it and doing it you know what the consistency does and what it does to a fly by seeing it in the water and you learn a, a lot from that you learn how to construct 100%. the fly
4: exactly and and so and so and imitate Imitate what they're eating. Don't imitate flies. Right. Like when you're learning, you have to imitate flies. Right. Because you have no idea what you're doing. But forget that. I don't I, you know, I don't go look up what's the best Hendrickson imitation. I go get a, 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 a Hendrickson and put it in the palm of my hand or I do a Google image search. and that. How do I get those wings to slant back? How do I get the body to be tapered? For, you know, it's it's you're imitating living creatures. You're not imitating other flies, at least for me.
1: Yeah, I one, out. absolutely. But I couldn't agree with you
4: more. So that's that's my little pearls of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> well,
1: we appreciate
2: it. It's been a great conversation, a lot of fun to talk with you tonight. And you know, we don't want to yeah, keep yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it's fun night. to talk
4: to you guys too.
2: But yeah, it was it was a great time. We appreciate you taking the time out for us, Johnny.
4: Okay, hope to meet you guys face to face sometime and um I'll be curious to uh to hear what it all sounds, how much of a fool I made of myself, so
1: <laughs> <laughs> So Mark. What what say you about this uh, this trout fishing? What'd you say? What say you about this trout fishing? What say you? What say you? What say you? What say
2: you? What you talking about, Willis?
1: You heard me. What do you say about this trout fishing?
2: <laughs> I, I, I'm ready to do another one. Are you? I am. It's I am. fun,
1: man. It it's a different style of fishing. It's more lightweight. You know. hmm You're not uh you're not beating up your body. It's nice to kind of sit and
2: slap the line out and work the rod tip, too, and do some jerk strips and kind of just mess around a little bit. And it's all within, you know, I mean, I was throwing a six weight with like a 250 grain full sink line. So, I mean, I can kind of just slap across most of that creek and cover it and just work the rod back.
1: And that's was fun. That's half the weight of what you're used to throwing oh, with yeah. a fly that's an eighth of the size. Mm-hmm. So it's nice. It's nice. It's relaxing.
2: And it's just every place we stopped and anchored, you just kind of like got out of the boat and you looked up, and it's just like the mountains around you, everything snow covered, pine tree lined. It's just it's 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 picturesque of what you would expect for that, and it's the nostalgic of
1: it. You want to take a hit off the bourbon bottle? It's just it's say, perfect. yeah, man, this is perfect. This is
2: beautiful. Yep. So that was it. It was uh, in the way I've always put it with any type of my fishing. It was satisfying today. Good. At the end of the day, I finished and I was. I didn't catch a fish. I, I, I you know, I was. We talked about it earlier. Missed a couple. I was satisfied.
1: Because last and time. And I don't you, get that out of that. Last time you went with Jay and myself, you actually did catch one, and you weren't satisfied. <laughs> mm. <And> today <laughs> and, I completely was. And it was the same exact float.
2: Yeah. Yep. And a hundred percent was today. Just wish we'd had a little bit more water, but no, if we want to do that coming up, this upcoming week. That'd be, that'd be a lot of fun
1: i like to do that low rain. Hopefully we get some water. I'm in. Uh, I do have to watch out, uh, you know, uh, giving myself up, because my grandma did go to the hospital today, and I had to go. Uh, my dad's out of town, so I was uh, the next in line, because my uncle's a useless POS. <laughs> uh, gotcha. <laughs> you know what I mean, bro? Yeah. I so, watching. I was next in line, and uh, I spent all day today at the Sharon Regional Hospital, uh, How's she doing now? Uh, she, this morning, my grandma suffer- suffers from dementia. So she she's like there and then she's not. But this morning she was super confused. She thought I was my dad's cousin for quite a while. You yeah, know, like, I go with it. And then like as the day wore on and she got better, she realized who I was. I, oh, you're my grandson, Chad. Yeah. Yes, I am. Uh, she asked me, uh, I'm going to say on the the high side of 65 times what it was doing outside oh, i'm going to say for the first 45 times i said ah oh, it's just cold and you know it's cold it's not doing anything and then it was like eh, it's about 70 it's it's raining <laughs> she, she said, what i thought it was cold I was like, no it, it's about 70 and, you know, it just it's coming down nice light sprinkle <laughs>
2: and then by the end, oh, it's a sauna out there. By the it's end, like a
1: desert. <laughs> by the end, uh, we uh we're going to Oz.
2: We're in the dog. <laughs> we're in the dog days of winter.
1: <laughs> we're going to Oz with the tornadoes. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what? Um, it it's all just keeping the spirits light. At the end of the day, you gotta keep your yeah. spirits light, and you gotta just keep going through it. How and, old uh, is she? She is going. First day of spring is her birthday. She's gonna be ninety goddamn six years oh old. Oh <laughs> god, jeez. God and bless her. She is. She's done well. She's healthy as a horse, except for her mind. Yeah. Um, I hope when I go, I can't move, but I can remember everything. Because that's how my my grandma on my mom's side was. She had rheumatoid arthritis and she couldn't move, but she could tell you what your birthday was, and she could tell me what my cousin's birthday was and she could tell me what my yeah. cousin Megan's birthday was and she knew Ashley and, you know, it's, it's one or the other. That's how you're going to go. You're going to remember everything and be crippled up or you're going to be strong of body, but not strong of mind. Yeah. So I'm uh, not to take a darker side, but it just it's something that happened today. Yeah. Mark and I wanted to have fun, and it it went down this road. <laughs> I'm That's sorry. Right. <laughs> hey, yeah. Well, we got
2: it in. We got it covered. Um. So
1: I left there. I left there at two o'clock this afternoon. I went to M&M Beer and bought a four pack of. uh Coffee? A four pack of two hard. Oh. Uh, God, I love that beer. That is be good. I had two of them, and I was feeling. I was like, man,
2: I, I am stuff. wrecked. Yeah, it, I am it's, wrecked. it's up there. <laughs> That's what, seven eight on them, I think? They're pretty decent. They're up there.
1: What I eight I,
2: four?
1: Uh seven oh. Seven oh okay. seven oh that's, but that's potent. It is one of the best, it's smoothest IPAs down. you mm-hmm. can get.
2: Hands down. So they do make the best. Yeah. The only then, other one that I think resembles or comes close. Yeah, might be it's a lot hoppier, stones.
1: Yeah, Stones is, it's different, it's drier. It is much drier. Where these guys is more like orangey, fruity, mm-hmm. Stones is a drier, pineier. But, uh, like, I, like I was saying to, um, uh, I, I forget what guest we had on, it, it was Mike Schultz. Our deer tails are like Bell's Two-Hearted IPAs. We're just craft tails, man. <laughs> All the way around. Yeah. <laughs> so about time
2: to get on them again
1: soon they are i think this weekend we're going to kick it up a notch do another another small run um but man these shirts i i got nothing more to yes. say but this is gonna are, be jay's gonna be the new face of fly fishing <laughs> and he's not even here to talk about it uh-uh. so like i you said can we put
2: that shirt down at any point
1: no we have to have him here to stare at you yeah. Just but like uh, directly.
2: Every time we look up, it's Jay's face,
1: Jay's face, Jay's face. Like I said, we we thank Jay for being here earlier, but he uh he's working afternoon or er, uh, midnight shifts, mm-hmm. so he had to leave. So we're gonna talk about him being the face of fly fishing with him not being here. Uh we got some shirts, man. If anyone wants them, hit us up on the SVS uh DM on Instagram. Slide into our DMs and we will get shirts uh Printed out a picture of him up yet? I have not yet. I'm gonna do it as soon as we post this show. I'm gonna put the picture up. I'm. Um, I got a picture of me with the front of it in my big man tits, <laughs> and Jay holding it in the back with it. His nose, uh, putting the sticker out of scale. <laughs> We're both malformed gentlemen. <laughs> uh, this, is a, this is great. Wow. <laughs> oh, but. Like I said, it it represents our show. It It's funny as shit, man. It's, it's about <laughs> dead on. Yep. So, um, we got anything else going on, man?
2: We got Tiny Night coming up here uh, last yep. Friday of the month. Last turnout was great. That was a lot of fun. I know official Chris today, he said he's definitely coming back again.
1: Yeah, he Hopefully. seemed to have a good time. He, he was fun time. to talk with.
2: Yep, hopefully Um, we'll have Matt out this time, so a couple new guys there.
1: That's two weeks from this Friday, or one week from this Friday. Yeah. This Friday's the 21st. Today's Today's the 16th. This Friday's the 21st, and then next Friday's the 28th, which is the last day of the month. No, it's the next to last day of the month. We got 29 this month. Yeah, this is a leap year. So, next Friday.
2: And then March 8th. That'll be two hundred.
1: Yes, it will. Goddamn. And damn. that is
2: also going to be daylight savings. Oh, is it? So now we're gonna be able to fish after work.
1: Oh, yeah. God damn. I can't wait. I know. I got home from the hospital today. I was like, man, I should go walk around in the woods, look for deer sheds or something, because the pond was frozen. I, was like, I don't know what time Mark's coming over. I gotta go. I gotta go next door and burn the chicken breast. So I just end up sitting on the couch. <laughs>
2: What is our river at? Is it fishable?
1: It's a little bit high. Eh, mm, 13. Yeah, I'm a little bit high, and it? it's not as high as it has been.
2: <laughs> they're all starting to come back down now and recede quick. That's what I'm noticing, is that all these are all these rivers are plumbing fast. Yeah. I thought there was a little more in the water table than what there was, but they're dropping the bottom out.
1: No, man, we got no snow. That's
2: No, it's already melting all off. I can get my net out of the bed of my truck now. <laughs> It all froze in there, and I had that, I couldn't get Even if I wanted to use it, I couldn't get it out of there. Did you
1: have any issue getting the water? Oh, out? yeah.
2: You did? You got it in your bed? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was fun. I had big you know, goobers hanging off of it, like 8 by 4 inch chunks.
1: Put it in the passenger seat, let the, the defrost thaw no, it out. No, <laughs> no. in the bed of
2: my truck. Yeah, that much ice on it. I had a puddle on my floor. <laughs> I broke all the pieces off of it. I didn't end up needing Oh, it's in the. In my truck too
1: to uh, grab it. I'm not fishing tomorrow like I said I'm going to see Sonic the Hedgehog alright <laughs> I gotta go see my grandma tomorrow I gotta go see Sonic so I've been there's going
2: every Saturday so I'm sure I'll be going again next Saturday
1: yeah that's a uh, I man I've been tying musky flies out of some of the bucktails we've been mm-hmm. getting done god damn they're nice and the tails not, are sweet not to uh not to brag on us but god damn <laughs> they're nice I've been mm-hmm. using a lot of them and
2: uh I got a couple of them here that you know the white and then that peach that you did just they're awesome. I mean every all for everything now except I mean, we got to dial in a couple colors. We need olive and chartreuse. Once we dial in olive and chartreuse everything else we have uh you know, pretty accessible ways for.
1: Yeah, uh, chartreuse is going to be tough. I think um we mm-hmm. just got to we got to try it, you know. The more I we think. try, the more we'll learn.
2: Well, I J- tried to do as your cards won last week. Tried to do it, you know, the same way I've done everything else, and that came out very bad.
1: Did it mm-hmm. very. <laughs> well, like you said, man, it's it's all learning. So we gotta we gotta try it, we gotta learn it, we gotta figure out what's going on, and then the more we learn, the more we'll. Uh... That's just it. Do it, take
2: notes. Do it, take notes, and then once you figure it out, lock it in and keep doing it that way.
1: Bless well, you. What was that?
2: A little squeaker. That's just it, locking in. I mean, it's going to take three, four, five tries or so. It'd be nice to be able to get it and just do everything with it. So let's say, like, you know, like here, Craffer. Let's go buy a whole bunch of Craffer and we'll just dye it.
1: But Craffer dye is different. you got to get synthetic dye versus natural dye, don't you? We don't use a natural dye the way it is. I know, but I'm just saying uh is synthetic. Only mm-hmm. really one way to find out. Huh.
2: But you know what? Now that I say that, I really want to waste all the time doing that when I can just buy it for
1: $2.50. I don't think so. Nope. Oh, wrong song. Whatever. There. there we go. This is what I wanted. It took me a while to find this song. This is my favorite band. This is what we fish to. Anytime we're fishing, you are saying Sponge, this is. You said, who who we were fishing with? And you said, yeah, when we fish with Chad, he listens to Sponge and Biggie, and that's it. Michael. (laughs) So, it's like our summer floats, man. We haven't had him on a float in a while now. You know what? He should come on the podcast and uh, talk about tying night one night. Yeah. You know, have him come over on a Sunday night. Have him skip magic. Oh,
2: you know what though? (laughs) He has um, class. It
1: doesn't end till seven thirty or eight. Well, we can uh, we can call in and do like a Thursday nighter or something with him. But he should come out, come in and talk about Tying Night, cause it's at his joint, you know. Yeah,
2: do even just do a weekday show.
1: Yeah, I would be uh, I'd be all for Michael coming in, talking about Tying Night.
2: Oh, he's always a treat to talk
1: to. Yeah, he's uh, he's always we'll on ramble, full on, tilt. Always full tilt, always. So. Mark, do we have anything else we want to hit on? No, I think we're good for tonight. I think we've uh, exhausted our our weekly supply of content. We sure have. We've left everyone wanting more. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>.
1: <laughs>
2: Fascinated.
1: So, yes, thoroughly enthralled with. Johnny all.
2: was great though. That was a lot of fun to talk to him. He was an awesome interview. I had a blast great, talking to Johnny
1: Depp. So next
2: week I- with Joe Goodspeed.
1: Tonight's show brought to us by Predator Fly Gear. Check them out at PredatorFlyGear.com.
2: Sims Fishing. It's that time of the year for it. Check out their waders and other gear. SimsFishing.com.
1: Tonight's show has been recorded at the Urban Fly Company Studios. Check them out at UrbanFlycompany.com.
2: A Rex Hooks. And if you're looking for something to put on them, Alls Dwarf Genetics. So
1: check them out. Hit me up at A RexHooks.com. Hey, one of these months here pretty soon, uh, I'm mailing some flies into A-Rex. They're gonna get photographed. I'm pretty uh, pretty excited about that. Check that out. <laughs> That's gonna be on the A-Rex Instagram page. I hope. Um, check out Why Not Fishing, and they're at the dock.
2: And Yeti built for the wild.